following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome back to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 99. That's right, ladies and gents. We're very, very close to episode 100. I'm your host, Lee. My ass may be dumb, but I ain't no dumbass, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. The very best there is when you absolutely, positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room, except no substitutes, Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I think it speaks for this podcast that you made a mistake in the opening and did not correct it, and that I have not written a synopsis. This is where we are with episode 99. Hopefully in the next hundred, we'll become more professional. Or not. It's a thing. What mistake did I make in the opening? What are you talking about? You stumbled over uh, a word. I'm going to edit that out. Uh, Alright, we're good. Well, now you can't. Now you can't, so it's fine. You motherfucker. I am, I am a motherfucker. I have fucked mothers in my life, so we're good. Yeah. yeah, same here. Um, <laughs> <we're>... <laughs> and but, never, but, never, but never chicks with guns, so, you know. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Actually, actually, I probably have, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, why discriminate? You know, yeah, as, long yeah. as, they don't, as long as they don't shoot you, why discriminate? We're finally ending this lengthy motherfucking crime series, and Daniel and I are both kind of drunk tonight, so... yeah. This is going to be a very casual, uh, fun episode. This is not going to be the in-depth dive that maybe you might have expected from the uh, Timbados crew. Yeah. Uh, th- this, will be, this will be a much more casual, fun examination of a great film. Can I just say that? A great film? And Jackie yeah, Brown? Yeah, very, very controversial statement there. Very yeah, well, Tarantino's a controversial filmmaker, so I, I, I'm, I'm leaning into it. Uh, honestly, I think the only argument we'll have is whether this is his best film or not. I think that's probably the only the only point where you and I are going to be in conflict at all. In this I, I think that's a conversation we should have, and but I think I think we'll ultimately kind of uh, nod at each other regardless. So you know, yeah. But as I mentioned, yeah, we're at episode ninety nine, hundredth episode coming. Not necessarily next week. We got to. Get our schedules in tune with Paul because he can't miss this one because we're going to be doing our live commentary of Night of the Living Dead from 1968. That's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be even more casual and drunken than this shit that you're going to listen to tonight. So get ready for that. By the way, if you, the listener who has been following us for a while, or if you're just a new listener, if you are so inclined, you can send in MP3s, uh, emails, whatever you so choose, and we will play them, listen to them, before we actually do the actual commentary for the actual movie. Mike Murphy from Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts has already sent us an MP3. If you want to do that, if you if you want to, you know, talk to us about our 
100th episode, then uh, we'd be more than happy to hear from you. We'd really enjoy some feedback on that, what what you like, what you don't like about the podcast, too. If, if you want to criticize us, please feel free, because we're always open to that. Yeah, I'm just really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. I will provide the email address in the show notes, if you were not aware what our email address is. And uh, you can send something along, or if you want to leave it on our official Facebook group, They Must Be Destroyed on Site on Facebook. If you're not a member, you should be. You can leave it there as well, and we'll get to it. I just think of Mike Murphy as uh, the man who you might know from episode 98 of Timbados, who also has another podcast. <laughs> that guy. That guy. That guy. I mean, he's, he's, got, he's, got, I mean, he's got a podcast of his own. It's fine. But yeah. really, most famously, he's on Timbados 98. And his dad may be the Zodiac may killer. may have been the Zodiac killer. Yeah, it's yeah, possible. Yeah. yeah. We didn't quite come to the conclusion there, but there was a lot of compelling evidence. There, there's a lot of compelling evidence, as there is that Ordo Roby is the single greatest villain in cinema history. You know what? I I probably wouldn't disagree with you there in in certain ways. So uh, that that I'm I'm looking forward to uh, that coming up in the conversation. Another thing I'll mention, uh, my if you were not aware, my latest episode of Blood on the Tracks, which is our sub podcast that focuses on soundtracks and scores, is up. It is focusing on heavy metal horror movies. So uh, if you have not checked that out yet, you should check that out. It was fun for me because I'd only known of really a handful of horror movies that actually had sort of heavy metal soundtracks or heavy metal uh, plots to them. Uh, I actually fell down a rabbit hole there and watched several movies that I was not familiar with just, just because of that. So it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed putting it together. This month's episode is going to be Italian horror, which is going to be probably the most difficult episode I've done so far because I just have so much shit to pick through that is so fucking amazing, and I don't want to pick all the obvious stuff at the same time, and I still want to fit it within one hour's time, which is sort of my goal for every episode of that. It's going to be an interesting month for me, piecing that together. But Is there a Morricone track in there? There, there may be one. There, there just may be one. Yeah, there might be a Bakalov and a Morricone track. See, see I, I feel, I feel like there needs to be at least one Morricone or Bakalov track. You know. In order, yeah. You know, in order to make me happy personally, but um, <laughs> you know, you, you may not care about that, which I would understand. You're not. But for me, yeah, you gotta have at least one. Well, you stuck around this long for 99 episodes, so I should throw you a bone once in a I while. I mean, I'm quitting after 100. Like 101, you're on your own, motherfucker. That's that's how this goes. Well, well, geez, after the after the after this crime series, which is extended for like six fucking months, like you know. <laughs> like... <laughs> Well, Daniel, I mean, you know, uh, it's very disappointing to hear this because you were just about to get your first paycheck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> well, apparently, yeah, give it to Jack Graham. You can give it to Jack Graham. He deserves it more than I do. So He's going to get all those Dollar Shave Club dollars. <laughs> all right. Shall we move on? We should move on, yeah. So we can move on now to what we have uh, watched in the last little while, and I'll throw over to you, Daniel, sir. Sure, I've got, I've got a few things that I watched that I uh, didn't want to necessarily uh, bring up in front of Mike Murphy. Not that he wouldn't want to talk about it, but we were uh, trying to kind of get to the meat of the episode with that one, because mm-hmm. he, for some reason, doesn't want to do three-hour podcast episodes. I don't understand <laughs> how that works, but um, you know. <laughs> I did watch Mindhorn, 
um, which is... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I haven't watched that yet, but it yeah, looks really fun. It very much is what you think it is. Um, yeah. It's only about 90 minutes long, and the last, like, uh, 30 minutes are a little bit trying in the way that these kind of comedy movies do tend to be sometimes, mm-hmm. um, in the sense of... Yeah, I kind of get the joke, and you're not really pushing this in any direction that's interesting. But it's a it's a fun concept. It doesn't quite go where you think it's going to go, maybe, from the from the previews. It's very much on the kind of muddy boosh. I don't know. It's fun. It is what it is. It's worth watching, if nothing else, just for the performances and just for the first half. But if you get through the first half and you're like, yeah, this is just kind of unbearable at this point, I kind of understand you turning it off. It's fine. You're not really missing that much at a certain point. But I can imagine this is going to have a really long shelf life in the sense Mm -hmm. of um, there are going to be people that just love every minute of it. And if you're that person, more power to you. I I understand, even though I don't agree. Worth a watch. It was fun. I'm not unhappy that I spent the 90 minutes on it. I wish it was as good as Hot Fuzz, but it's not, you know. And that's uh, well, that's 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 kind of a hard one to match up to. So. It is, it is. It, it doesn't have the third act triumph that Hot Fuzz does. It just kind of keeps going in the direction that it's going. So, ah. um, you know. I also watched basically all the DC Universe movies since we really talked oh, yeah. last. Um and uh, I thought it might be worth talking about. Have you seen, uh, I mean, have you seen them all? I just recently saw Wonder Woman, so I believe I have seen them all, yeah. Okay, so you've seen Suicide Squad, yep. uh, Man of Steel, and Batman vs. Superman as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't hate Batman vs. Superman. I know a lot of people do. In fact, I think the first 20 minutes of it is one of the greatest superhero films of all time. It completely loses the point after that. And here's where I land on it, all right? So, Superman is kind of a metaphor of how we in America feel about our country and how uh, our media responds to that is sort of a response to how it wants to respond to that. But, so, the opening of Batman vs. Superman is huge destructive power being rained on Metropolis by Superman fighting this more evil power, right? Right. But it's also like killing people and that sort of thing. So the first few minutes of it are very much about sort of American bombs raining on the Taliban, basically. Mm-hmm. That's what the metaphor is, you know. And then Batman is a dude standing on the ground looking at this and going, well, Superman is a fuckhead. Mm-hmm. All of this is great. Like, that's an amazing visual metaphor. Then it goes into something even more interesting, which is... Jimmy Olsen is not just a photographer, but Jimmy Olsen is a CIA operative who is, like, underground as a photographer, goes into a place where they burn civilians to death. Mm -hmm. Superman doesn't give a shit until they threaten his girlfriend. Right. And then he comes in. That's a really interesting and complex portrait of the American imperialist power, which is, again, how I interpret Superman, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then it turns out Lex Luthor is just responsible for everything. That's how yeah. kind of the plot revolves. And so it completely drops all of the interesting things about the first 20 minutes. But the first 20 million minutes are brilliant, right? I would I would probably agree with you there because, yeah, there is some interesting stuff in that first little bit of the movie. And then it goes where almost... Well, actually, honestly, I mean, even with Wonder Woman, where every DC movie has gone, where it's gods fighting. 
and it's yeah, a big sure, CGI yeah. bullshit thing at the end, well, right? Well, it, it, it becomes like everything Lex Luthor is like manipulating events to make these things happen. And I think there's still some interesting stuff that happens after that, but I think a... It's not that Jesse Eisenberg is necessarily miscast, although he's probably miscast. I think he could have done the right work, but the writing isn't there to really flesh him out as a character. He just kind of comes, well, he's crazy, you know. Quote yeah, unquote, he's you know? not. He's not the Lex Luthor character. Like, there, I've never seen any comic book interpretation of Lex Luthor that fits what you see on the screen there of his character. Basically, he's underwritten, and since he's the big villain and he's the big reveal, it kind of becomes, like, fundamentally problematic. And then it kind of also becomes he's manipulating events to kind of make Batman and Superman fight each other. I like some of that fight. I like a whole lot of what... I mean, I actually like a bunch of the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. But it never quite gels for me. But I don't hate it in the way that, like, fandom just seems to, like, have this, like, fundamental hatred for just things that are in the film. Uh, I, I think a lot of the criticism yeah. is kind of silly, fundamentally. But what it does, what Batman vs. Superman does is it it really swings through the fences. It really is aiming for something. It's trying to be politically relevant. It's trying to be this big, complicated thing about how we feel about superheroes. It fails at a whole bunch of that. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. What Wonder Woman does is it succeeds at being a really simple vision of what a superhero movie can be, but it doesn't really aim for for a whole lot that's a bigger picture kind of Wonder Woman is the Captain America of the DC Universe films. Abs- well, it's it's the, the cap- first Captain America film. Yeah. Um, which, the first Captain America film, to me, the great thing about that is Chris Evans as Captain America. It is sort of the training sequences. It is about this sort of morality of this guy who's mm-hmm. trying to be this person who then he finds his heroism. And it's very, I mean, a Wonder Woman is very built around that same kind of mechanism. One of the problems is, is that we've already seen Wonder Woman in Batman vs. Superman, and yeah. she's way more interesting than mm-hmm. the sort of naive character that we see, which is sort of, it feels like we're going backwards with the character, um, just sort of the basis of a prequel, right? Like, that's just sort of what we're going to get. And I'm I, I'm okay with that, except that, like, I really like the vision we saw in Batman vs. Superman, and then to go backwards, it kind of feels like, uh, why are we doing this? Another structural thing, and I understand, I mean, you know, the sort of feminist response to the warrior women on the island sort of Mm -hmm. thing. I'm completely okay with that. But we spend the first 30 to 40 minutes of the film basically on the island. We spend a whole lot of time with them, and then we don't come back, right? Yeah. So one woman leaves the island, and it's like, you don't get to come back, et cetera, et cetera. It's a great moment, except the whole structurally, we spent so much time there. It's kind of wasted time. Yeah, totally not necessarily agree. visceral. Not not necessarily in terms of like the value of that. Just you know, cinema is great, but uh, we kind of leave. And structurally, what we should do is at the end, Avery should come back to the island to yeah. like threaten it. You know, yeah. There's 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 no payoff. There there's no payoff to it. So ultimately, structurally, we're kind of left with that. Um, also, once we leave the island, we kind of get 
extended sequences of Gal Gadot being fished out of water. And she's great at that. Honestly, she's better at that than I ever thought she would be. D- doesn't yeah. that movie become Splash, basically? It does. It, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and not in a bad way. I mean, it's, no, no, it's, no. She's hilarious. I mean, no, she's, she's great. She's really know? good. She's um, really fucking good. And then and then we get the, the sort of action sequences. We get the, the relationship between uh, Chris Pine and Wonder Woman I like. I just wish the structure was better. I wish that... I mean, we could kind of quibble about some stuff. I like the film overall. Politically, going back to World War One is kind of a problematic thing. And I mean, there's a lot of shit well, in there. It's, all, especially, especially when you make the villains essentially just Nazis anyway. It's like... Right, right. Uh, well, come on now. It's like, fuck. Right. Ignoring the sort of historical re- reality of like World War One, ignoring... Uh, gas warfare and what that meant and um yeah there's there's a lot of shit in there i really again i really appreciate the film this has been as successful as it is but really the whole thing is patty jenkins is just kind of on the we're gonna make the feel-good superhero movie as a way of like we're gonna run the bases we're gonna do something that people are gonna like and then we're gonna hopefully do something more interesting for the second one and that's yeah yeah that's kind of where i land on that maybe justice league is kind of where it's all gonna gel but I do kind of feel like it's almost the opposite problem, where BVS is aiming for the stars and only reaching the moon, whereas Wonder Woman is really just kind of doing the thing it's doing. It's fairly simplistic, but it does it really well, so it's kind of hard to criticize it for that. You know, I feel like everything's in reverse fucking order with everything they do. We should we should have gotten this first, ultimately. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and Batman vs. Superman feels like it should be one of the last movies in, in the actual DC movie cycle because it's one of the last things in one of the comic book stories where this is years after where Batman and Superman finally come to blows. Like, there's there's always been that contention between the two characters where they respect each other but they don't like each other and they don't approve of each other's methods and. And you can take that, and then, of course, you can take all the sort of political, social relevance from today that you mentioned and stick it into that and make it interesting. I just feel like that should have been the movie that's four or five movies down. Oh, right, right. I mean, clearly, I mean, and I'm kind of judging these, like, individually. I'm not trying to judge them relative to the Marvel Universe, because really, the DC Universe is working really hard, too try to do in three movies what the Marvel Universe did in ten. You know? Right. They're they're trying to blow their load way too fast, which is right, right. a, a fucking d- mistake. Despite the fact that, I mean, Wonder Woman and Superman and Batman are three of the greatest characters in, like, comic mm-hmm. history, you know? Like, it's it's a way more resonant set of characters. Like we, they, we, they, they are the originals. Like, they're before Marvel. They, they yeah, are Absolutely, absolutely. Like, we should be able to, like, sit down and enjoy it. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a Zack Snyder hater. I know a lot of people who are. I actually quite like a lot of Man of Steel. I mean, it has its problems. But I think that there's a lot of, a lot of the criticism is kind of based on, well, the aesthetic is doing what it's trying to do. But ultimately what these films are trying to do is like pretend like they've already built a certain level of kind of emotional resonance right. and then like trying to subvert it. Whereas Wonder Woman coming after is trying to do the more simple thing, which yeah. they should have been doing from the beginning. And so there yeah. is this sort of sense of that uh, Warner Brothers doesn't really understand what they're really trying to do with this film series. I mean, so yeah. it's, it's, it's a mess. The whole series is a mess. Hopefully, with Justice League, they're going to kind of like write the course. I have, 
I don't have confidence, but I have. A certain <laughs> level mean of, me yeah. either. I have a certain, I have a certain level of you know, do what you do. I'll go see it. It's it's going to be interesting. Um, maybe I also don't really hate the other films in the series, even Suicide Squad, which is clearly the worst of the four. Yeah, um, I I don't like that movie yeah. at all. But I, although I did give it, I think a fair review on my letterbox, but I. You know, I I just don't like it, but um, I mean, it's, it's like it's like a three out of five, or a two point five out of five, or something. You know, like, eh, I uh, I think I gave it two stars out of five on Letterboxd or whatever. The I, fuck. I mean, it's it's a complicated thing because like there's a whole lot that you you want to like about it. You know, like, yeah. And and uh, for me, it's just like there's such a uh, response in fandom. It's just like, oh, it sucks. It's the worst thing ever. And it's like, well, no, it's not. No, it, it, it's definitely not the worst thing ever. Here's what I'll say. Here's the confidence I have in the DC Universe. This is the one thing I'm confident about. Anytime I hear that Wonder Woman theme and Gal Gadot runs onto the screen mm-hmm. and starts kicking ass, I'm going to get goosebumps and I'm going to get a boner. In that order. Fair enough. <laughs> and, and that's about and, it. And that's, that, that's great. That, that, that's, what, that's what that film is designed to do and that music cue is designed to do. So love that job. theme. God damn. Yeah. What's his fucking face? He did, did the music. Uh, Hans Zimmer, where have you been in the last like 10, 15 years? Why were you not writing music like this <laughs> for that last bit of while? Yeah, I know. I, I get that. I get that. So Jesus, that's really good stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we could sit and talk in detail about uh, these films, but like people don't show up to this podcast to, to you know, Listen to me, like analyze uh, Batman versus Superman in terms of his politics. You know, you know, and, and anything else you've uh, watched in the last while, or? Uh, I mean, no. I we'll just leave it at that. There's okay. more, but like that, that's enough for now. One I'll mention I watched is on Netflix now. It's called Beyond the Gates. It's a little uh, kind of independent horror film. It's based around the idea of those uh, VHS horror games, party games that you get back in the late '80s, early '90s, like Nightmare. Do, do you remember those? I, I have no context for this. So you don't? You've never you've never heard or seen one of these things? It's it's I, a it's a it's a VA, VHS board game where I mean I know there were VHS board games that existed. I don't I, I you know I don't I never oh. played one or anything. Oh, okay, okay. It's kind of interesting. It it takes that concept. It's basically a VHS board game. Uh, There there was a couple horror ones. One was called Nightmare, which was probably the most popular one. I owned it for a while. You basically just play the tape, and you follow the instructions, play, pause, here and there, whatever. And the uh, antagonist on the actual VHS is sort of like the games master, the dungeon master, or whatever, and, like guides you through the game. This is the idea of, like, a cursed one that can, like, have real-life consequences depending on what you pick. It's an interesting concept. It doesn't quite work as far as I'm concerned. It's got Barbara Crampton, who is uh, 80s uh, Scream Queen, if you're not familiar with her. I don't know if you are or not. I like her. Still fucking beautiful to this day, even in her 50s. Uh, she was in one of my favorite films the last couple of years, We Are Still Here, and she's really good in this, but the film itself just kind of, like, doesn't really capitalize on its concept all that well, it doesn't do anything really interesting with it, but it's still kind of an interesting curiosity for people who know those sort of VHS horror board games and just want to check it out. I think the biggest problem is it's just, it introduces a couple storylines, like it's basically this kind of estranged brother's come back to their dad's old VHS store 
And by the way, he has this store that is one of the biggest, most extensive VHS mom and pop shops I've ever seen in my fucking life. Like it's just, it's it's amazing. And the idea that they're cleaning it out in a couple of days is just impossible. Like there's no way they're cleaning it out. Right. And but just kind of depends too much on the fact that oh we got this '80s nostalgia thing going on that uh, people are just going to gravitate towards. But that being said, I think it's still kind of interesting, even though it doesn't quite work. And it's worth checking out if uh, people are interested. Next thing I'm going to mention is Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. I I, I watched a bunch of that myself. Have you? Yeah, all right. I like it. I like it a lot. It's it's quite good, yes. And it is surprisingly accurate. I mean, it's, it's a fictionalized version of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, which was a phenomenon in the 80s. It's actually still a company. It's still going on. I, but I was kind of led to the impression that it ended and then came back in like it did. or something. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know the world, so, so I'm, I'm asking you, like, that's what I got, I got like reading Wikipedia. Um, I know there was a documentary a couple of years ago, yes. and watching the series. So my wife really watched it, and then like I kind of watched some of it, and um, I liked it, like I really liked it. So, so tell me, tell me how you feel about it. It's, I'm, I'm only about five episodes in, but I'm really sold on it. It does get what glow kind of was in the eighties. Like I, I didn't watch the original glow, but I do know of what it was and what it was trying to do. It was different from professional wrestling at that point in that era, because it was more of a scripted television show. It it actually had seasons, you know, like 26 episodes a season or whatever. Whereas professional wrestling doesn't really have that. Although there's some wrestling companies now that do do that same thing these days. So glow actually, actually kind of has a legacy in other professional wrestling companies. Now in that regard, it gets things right. It has a couple of real professional wrestlers in it. It does pay respect to the actual reality of what professional wrestlers have to do and it does make a point to show that these women are not actually really trained to be professional wrestlers like actual professional wrestlers are and i was really surprised there's some really good dramatic stuff in this i mean the main character played by allison brie is not necessarily the most pure-hearted innocent character she she makes some pretty dumb fucking mistakes and she's paying for it throughout the entire series also, Alison Pree is really hot, and you get to see her naked. So there's that as well. That's always that's always a fucking. Plus. I was I was I was so like my I was I was like you know like making dinner or whatever. And my wife started watching it, and uh, she's like, "Hey, hey, come in here!" And uh, I I look in, and it's like, "Oh, Alison Brie naked." I'm not gonna ever complain about beautiful people being on my television screen in random clothing. It does feel like a little bit of a like. Uh, oh well, it, it's definitely it's, it's completely exploitative because there's no, no reason for it except oh look, it's the thing where Allison Brie gets naked. Congratulations, you've now seen her naked. You know, it, no, no, it, it's it's, very... it's, it's kind of disgusting to me the way they do. You know, <laughs> it, it's very exploitative because there's you've basically got two nude scenes with Allison Brie in the very first episode. One where she gets, she's getting changed, and one where she's banging her best friend's husband. Right, right. <laughs> but. But uh, I mean, it's it's like how these series, you know, show we're serious adult entertainment. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. we're we're gonna show Alison Brie's tits, and therefore, 
we're doing it artistically and it's fine. And it's just a, if Alison Brie wants to show her tits, then I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I am not going to judge her one way or the other, but I do judge the series for being that base that they need to establish their bona fides by making themselves seem adult by being like, we've got nudity from a famous <laughs> actress. Like go fuck yourself, you know, like eh, you, you to know. be, to be fair though, they don't, as the series goes on, they don't really. Uh, well, well, they don't continue it. Like, I mean, you know, it's there's uh, there's like know. two nude scenes afterwards, as far right, as I right. know. I mean, the treatment of sexuality gets uh, actually. I, I I'd be interested. In, uh, maybe in the next episode, we'll talk about or you know down the line, we can talk about uh, more kind of where it goes because I have seen like the bulk of the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. In the the treatment of sexuality, there there's some really interesting stuff going in there. It's just sort of like one of those like I just roll my eyes at, at that sort of. It really is just like we're gonna we're gonna be on Mr. Skin and it's gonna be great because people are gonna. <laughs> you know, it does. It's just it feels so manipulative, you know. Um, and I just uh, I was I was gladly manipulated by. It. I mean um, I'm I'm I mean Allison Brie is gorgeous and she's she's awesome and I really love her in this. I mean she's really good. Mm-hmm. She's legitimately brilliant in the series, and I've been a little bit iffy about Alice Brie outside of Community since she left. I mean, since Community ended, you know. So, yeah, she did a couple movies, right? You know, but... she she was in Get Hard, and she basically was like, "I have tits, and I'm in Get Hard, and it's fine." Like she was sexy in that, but like I, you know, a lot of the other stuff is just kind of like, you know, who are you as an actress? And she's really good in this. It's not that I'm disgusted that Alice Brie did it. I'm disgusted that that's where, like, quote-unquote serious prestige television just has to go, where we have to put our actress naked, you know? like Yeah, well, I, I don't consider this serious prestige television, but I think the series is going in the right direction as far as yeah. what I've seen so far. I, I like all the characters. I like what they're doing with all the characters. <laughs> I think Mark Maron is fucking amazing in this. Oh, this he, is... he, he's a phenomenal sleazebag. And, and, I, and I'm just going to say, I got to the end of the series with mm-hmm. my wife, and then I rewatched No Retreat, No Surrender, which should tell you everything you need to know about the end of the series. <laughs> and also made me think, we need to fucking talk about No Retreat, No Surrender at some point, because, yeah. oh my fucking god. But yeah, yeah, Mark Maron's great in this, and I like all the performances, and so far I'm just really enjoying the fuck out of the series. And I, I didn't expect to, because I'm not a big fan of women's wrestling. I mean, honestly, I... The opinion I had of Glow was not necessarily all that positive, but I did know the history behind it, and this gets the history fairly well, even though it's a fictionalized version of everything. Yeah, what I, what I understand from just uh, again the very cursory amount of research is that the details in the series are not necessarily accurate. Like they they've sort of dramatized like all yeah. the individual people, but like the sort of big picture of these are who the, this group was. Is all mm-hmm. kind of yeah, it, it's but very then, much that. But then ultimately, like, the individual, like, personalities and the characters and all this sort of thing, they just kind of created for the series and sort of let them Yeah, go. So they, they, they built they, a soap opera around this idea. You know? Right. Yeah, they were they were hiring, they weren't hiring people who were necessarily in the business. Like, they had a couple people who were actually female professional wrestlers, but for the most part, they were hiring models, they were hiring fitness, yep. people with fitness backgrounds, actresses, and stuff like that, right? And they were working with that. And, yeah, it, it actually gets that very correctly. And, and I do appreciate that they do make a point of, you know, this was kind of, it was either do this 
as a female actress or be the secretary on a movie or show your tits in a porno or whatever, you know, like well, it, 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 the, the film or the series, excuse me, rides that line between it portrays both the empowerment of we're going to be badass women mm-hmm. kind of being sexy, but also kind of being badass with also we're being manipulated by, you know, Mark Maron's character right, in terms right. of, you know, like, portraying these things and it, it really does kind of ask the audience to sort of how do you feel about this and it mm-hmm. portrays it honestly which i think is uh one of the challenges in this kind of thing is to neither kind of take advantage of nor to apologize for this kind of you know thing yeah you know, so. all, all i gotta say is i was pleasantly surprised by it and i i've loved it so far and i look forward to watching the second half of the season and yeah i would love to sit and talk to you about it more once you've seen the end so Last thing I'll mention is I got the Blu-ray DVD combo pack from Blue Underground for Deathline, also known as Raw Meat, which is a British horror film from the 1970s. Just hold a second. I checked the actual date for this. 72, yeah. So it's actually before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is kind of an obscurity in a little bit, in a certain way. It's a film I last saw when I was a little kid, and I rewatched it since I got this copy. It's basically centers around people going missing in the London underground. And the idea is that there's this little community of cannibals that developed in the London underground when a part of it got basically caved in, but there were still air pockets, so they survived. And the idea is the last of this little community is sort of branching out into other areas of the London Underground and killing people and eating them. Surprisingly not what you would think it is going into it, though. It's not like a straight-up slasher film or anything like that. It's, it's very much more... It has more gravitas and more pathos in it, especially with the actual cannibal who is much more of a sympathetic Frankenstein's monster kind of character in a, in a lot of ways. It's got Donald Pleasance as the sort of the lead in this as a police detective giving what I think is probably one of his all-time best performances on film. This sort of working-class British police detective who is just really great. Like, he, he just does a great job. And he's not a perfect character, too. He's, he's very flawed in a lot of ways, but uh, it's very interesting to watch. Christopher Lee shows up for, like, five minutes in it, playing this guy from MI5 who's just real classist prick who, who looks down on Donald Pleasant's character. And I love yes, it. Yes, you do. Yes, yeah. You do. yeah, yeah. I love it. It's great because it, it does comment on the sort of class system in in England, especially at that time, and especially with, like, how there was an emerging youth movement of, you know, sort of modern youth kind of emerging in the 70s, like, before punk rock and stuff like that. But there's sort of, like, it sort of brushes upon that and brushes upon the class system. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in it. And it also, it's there's some really good gore scenes and stuff, too. It's like, it's it's a good horror movie. It's It's very creepy very effectively done, and I'm glad I pre-ordered it. Yeah, that's awesome. What's the title again? It is called Deathline. Awesome. Uh, the The American version was called Raw Meat, and that was the one I saw cause, as a kid, because it was uh, kind of edited in certain places. Like, there was, there was some pretty noticeable cuts. Seeing it again this, after this, all these this, years. This sounds like something we should discuss in the future. It's, it's I was planning on it. I was, I was kind of thinking something like, for the end of the summer. As yeah, as we no, no. So. We, we, should, we should discuss it, so uh, I'll just, I'll just kind of leave it to that. Like, that sounds interesting. 
So yeah. All right. We're going to take a little break. We'll play some promos for some podcasts that I love and we'll get into a little bit of music and we'll be back to talk about Jackie Brown. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms. To see you will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. This is a distress call from across time and space. I am Babs the automated biological support system for the humanoid known as the Witch. Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock is the weekly chronicle of his fight for survival and entertainment on the junk heap of the future. Episodes are transmitted in 15-minute pulses across the dimensional divide weekly for your listening pleasure. As you will learn, the future is not set in stone, and a flux capacitor is a girl's best friend. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and on your Android device. Come join the rest of the Meat Popsicles in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash vs the Doomsday Clock. The replicant known as which can be found on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr and Instagram by searching for T-H-E-W-Y-C-H. The Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock is a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Now in the words of Lord Humongous. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror.
Now we're going to look at Jackie Brown from 1997. Here we go. If you have the chance to walk off with a half million dollars, would you take it? Yeah. What do a stewardess, a gun runner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You gonna come in on this thing with me. You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half million in cash. Wouldn't be missed. Half a million dollars will always be missed. Let him get the money and then just take it from him. She's trying to play your ass against me, huh? That was fun. Yeah, that'll be a spot. There's only one question. Who's playing who? Let's make a deal. Oh, yeah? So what you gonna give us? Are you gonna offer to set them up? Yeah. Is she dead? I, I, I... Yes or no, is she dead? Pretty much. Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. AK-47, when you absolutely, positively got to kill every mother in the room... No substitutes. <laughs> Woo! Directed by Quentin Tarantino. Written by Quentin Tarantino, based on the novel Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. Starring Pam Greer as Jackie Brown, Samuel L. Jackson as Ordell Roby, Robert Forrester as Max Cherry, Bridget Fonda as Melanie Ralston, Michael Keaton as Ray Nicolette, Robert De Niro as Louis Gara. Michael Bowen as Mark Dargis and Chris Tucker as Beaumont Livingston. And I'll throw over to you, Daniel, for the synopsis. Well, I didn't write one because I didn't make the time to do it, despite the fact that I had two weeks to, to write it, and I'm five beers drunk. But, like, I've seen this movie like 20 times. So, here's the thing. Ordell Roby, Samuel L. Jackson, motherfucker. Uh, he has three girlfriends. Melanie, Sharonda, and Simone. Mm-hmm. His buddy, Louis Guerra, fresh out of prison, is attracted to his girlfriend, Melanie. And uh, he's a gun runner. He's a gun smuggler. He's trying to get a million dollars out of Mexico from his uh, pal, Mr. Walker. Turns out, one of his associates, Beaumont Livingston, goes drunk driving with a pistol. Which, the film says, if you're going to go drunk driving, don't do it with a fucking pistol if you've got a record. <laughs> Ordell kills Beaumont. After an extended sequence in which includes Ordell offering uh, chicken and waffles. Roscoe's chicken and waffles. Roscoe's chicken and waffles to uh, Beaumont uh, in exchange for his service. Murders Beaumont, shows the body to uh, his buddy Lewis. And then we're introduced to his other associate, Jackie Brown, paid by the lovely Pam Greer, who becomes our lead character. Turns out she's trying to smuggle money, $50,000 at a time, out of Mexico for Ordell, and, which is fine, except the FBI is now onto her, and the ATF is onto her. And uh, Mr. Walker has thrown uh, like an ounce of cocaine for Melanie into her bag. It's discovered in the search, and then she goes to jail, which introduces her to Max Cherry, who is played by Robert Forrester, who is brilliant in the film. Yeah. Max Cherry runs a bail bond service. He uh, bonds Jackie out of prison. And then we enter an extended sequence of the movie in which Robert Forrester and Pam Greer enter a romance whereby they are both interested in bumping each other's uglies and uh, also committing crimes together 
which is basically stealing Ordell Roby's half million dollars, which he's now trying to get out of Mexico. Whether they're successful or not, you be the judge. They are indeed successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is a very convoluted plan based on everyone else is also trying to get the money. That's kind of the surface level reading of the film. That's really it, yeah. Well done. Yeah. Sorry, I ha- I literally have seen this film 20 or 30 times. So, um, you know, I rewatched it the other night just to just to kind of get another a glance at it for the podcast, but I didn't have to. This is a phenomenal film. This is the Tarantino I, I tell people who aren't interested in Tarantino to watch because all the shit that people don't like about Tarantino, like very little of it is in this. Right. Um, I mean, I'm a Tarantino fan. I'm not an ashamed Tarantino fan. I'm a proud Tarantino fan. There's a lot of shit that he has to apologize for, but I think overall he is a brilliant filmmaker. But Jackie Brown is um, his take on, uh, like his big take on black exploitation and uh, his response to black exploitation. His, uh, really his his big crime film. He very much improves on the original novel, which I read last year as mm-hmm. a uh, just a just sort of like casual read. He definitely improves on the Elmer Leonard novel, which is saying something. And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I don't know. Like this is one of the great films of its kind ever made as far as I'm concerned. Totally agree here. I recently just reread Rum Punch. Yep, which this is based upon, and he cuts a lot of the fat out of it, but he sticks incredibly close at the same time to what Leonard was writing here. I mean, Elmore Leonard credited this as the best adaptation of his film, well, one of one of his books. I mean, Leonard, Leonard is doing something different than Tarantino was doing, and I think this mm-hmm. is the yeah. Leonard is trying to kind of portray this portrait of uh, kind of L.A. at this time. You know, and well, no, of... well, no, no. Lin- Leonard, all the stuff that Leonard wrote, most of it was centered in Florida. Th- this is Tarantino sort of transporting it to L.A. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, and and, and, and Tarantino said that he did that specifically because he doesn't know Florida like Leonard knew Florida. He knows L.A. better, so that's where he sort of stuck it. Well, Leonard, uh, sorry, I, I apologize. So. Um, Leonard is trying to kind of portray a subculture. He's trying to portray this world. You know, he's trying right. to make. So there are neo Nazis, and uh, there yeah. are you know, th- there's an extended uh, subplot about uh, Max Cherry's wife and the ex wife, yeah, strange wife, yeah, yeah. 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 There, there's there's an extended. Uh, sorry, it's been a little while since I've read it, so I apologize. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of kind of extraneous detail, like in the novel. Uh, Louis Guerra, who's Robert De Niro's character, um, you know, takes like steals guns from Max Cherry's bail bondsman, and so like it sort of connects plot-wise to, but it's all just kind of extraneous detail. So what Tarantino does in the writing is he kind of takes the bare structure of the book, he takes the you know, what happens and why and who the characters are, and then strips them of all that detail and then, like, basically points the camera at them and says, who are you really? And he mm-hmm. brings all of that sort of character detail bubbling to the surface just through direction and performance, you know? Because, ultimately, all the other stuff is just... I mean, it's there in the novel because, like, you know, Leonard, Leonard hates these people. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Leonard, Leonard doesn't like people. You know, yeah, Leonard yeah, yeah, yeah. basically is just kind of like 
these are all like really, really shitty, disgusting people, and we're reading about them because they're terrible, and we're kind of reading for them to to die, basically. <laughs> That's kind of what Leonard Tarantino kind of loves these people. He kind of he wants you to love them as well. He wants you to acknowledge their flaws, but he kind of wants you to treat them as people. And that's kind of the fundamental difference between the novel and and I've read I've read I've read a little bit of Leonard. I haven't read a lot, but I've read enough of Leonard to say Leonard is brilliant in terms of plotting. He's brilliant in terms of his like kind of crime structure. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I never leave his books and go there's a really great person that I really want to know more about. I'm just like, well, though, that's just a pile of shitheads, you know, whereas Santino really wants you to love these people. Yeah. Know? Cause Leonard, to be fair, a lot of Leonard's protagonists are very just limp. Like they're very one dimensional. Like the, the good guys are just kind of boring and all the bad guys are scumbags. And yep. he, he just sets them up in positions to fail and die is basically what he does. And it's brilliant. I love it. But that's what he does. And here in this movie, Quentin Tarantino has basically taken Rump Punch. He's cut all the fat out of it. He's streamlined it. He's taken these characters. But at the same time, he's done one of the essential things that Leonard does in his books, though. He tells the entire story through the dialogue of the characters more mm-hmm. than anything else. The, the first two-thirds of this movie are characters hanging out in places and talking. And you get to learn the characters, you get to learn their motivations. They're talking about the plot, the eventual plot that's going to happen, but you don't see that, and you only see it briefly in the last third of the film, even. Yeah. And I mean, it really is, once you get to the final third, you get to the, like, oh, this is a thing we've all we've been leading towards the whole time. But ultimately, everything before then is just setting up who these people are and why they're going to do the things they do. Yeah, a lot of long takes, man. A lot of long takes in this. Well, like, which is which is very which is very uh, Tarantino-esque, at least at this time period. You know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tarantino doesn't get enough credit for like living, giving characters uh, room to breathe. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you're you're right. Tarantino actually like really loves these characters. I mean, <laughs> there there's a story that the characters Ordell Roby and Louis Gara. This is not the first time they appeared in a Elmore Leonard book like they they appeared in the switch which i've also read i've not read that one so yeah and that was an earlier version of this and there's definitely some differences melanie is in that as well so there's a little bit of difference here where lewis and in in this film doesn't know melanie she meets mel he meets melanie but they know melanie in the earlier uh book that was a book that Tarantino actually, uh, he got caught shoplifting it. And <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was like the, the only crime he ever committed, but that, that was a book he, he, he stole. He got caught shoplifting it at age 15, apparently. But um, I, I believe that. Well, and, and Melanie is a, uh, a character. Uh, I mean, in, in the uh, novel, she's treated as, you know, this kind of aging beach bum, like uh She's very, you know, I mean, she's in her late thirties or whatever, and it is sort of this aging blonde bimbo, basically. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to diminish her as as no, no, no. Uh, that's who she is, you know. In in the switch and in rum punch, she is much more manipulative. Uh, Yeah, yeah, she she's very much more like a femme fatale kind of character. Like she's. Actually, well, she's a femme fatale, but she's kind of a pathetic femme fatale. Like, well, yeah, like 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 there is. 
Yeah, low rent and, and just kind of this, like, you know, whereas uh, in the film, you know, it's basically like it's Bridget Fonda in 1997 and she's like blonde and gorgeous and we get to look at her legs for, you know, a big bulk of the right. film. Yeah. And, her, <laughs> like, and her feet as well, of course. And her feet as well. Although <laughs> you don't quite get the fetishistic detail that you get of feet in either Pulp Fiction or, you know, well, uh, uh, but Kill Bill or uh, Death Proof. But the way the way he shoots her, though. Um, oh no, he's. I mean, the camera's in love with her in this film. But oh the, no, the, but but the the. I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, the, the no, scene no, no, where no. the scene where um, Lewis is talking to Ordell, and it, it, it's a bit of a wider shot. So they're over on the couch. They're talking, and you see Melanie's legs, and I mean that is explicitly meant to show Lewis noticing. Melanie. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, it's it's very much. I mean, the camera loves Melanie in this, mm-hmm. and, and and so I, I'm not trying to diminish that. I, I guess it's just um, the, and, and it's not even like in the dialogue. It's like, oh yeah, you've known Ardell for years and years, and so clearly, sort of, she's supposed to be a little bit older. She's supposed to not quite be as you know, quote unquote, traditionally hot as as she is there. Right. Um, She's. It's a very big difference in terms of like her characterization versus the book. Um, and, and but I think it's also indicative of the difference that Leonard is trying to kind of treat these characters as, as kind of scuzzy and dirty, mm-hmm. and you kind of get this like level of grime that's just on all of them. Whereas like you look at Bridget Fonda in the film, and I mean she's just. I mean she's fucking. She's fucking gorgeous. Yeah. I, and you know there's there's no regardless of how you feel about. Tarantino's obvious foot fetishism and all that other thing, you know. Um, she is portrayed as this is the blonde surfer girl. Whereas uh, in the novel, you know, when Ordell describes her that way, it's like, you know, we kind of get to see, well, Ordell has definitely got rose-colored glasses on or he's pretending to, you know. Um, well, I think uh, one of the key things here is that Ordell is dumb. Like, he, he, yeah. he's, not, he's not a smart guy. Here, here's the thing. That's both in the book and in the film. Mm-hmm. Ordell is a guy who's slightly smarter than the people he associates with, for the most part. And mm-hmm. that's how he's gotten where he is right now. But he's actually kind of dumb, and Melanie is actually really smart, and she actually has Ordell's number as far as she knows that he's full of shit. Right. I think he's, you know, of the characters in the film, he's probably the second smartest after Jackie. Well, yeah, here's um, the thing. He he think he can he can think things through, but he he has a high opinion of himself, which right. is you know, and I think this is just like as an entrepreneur, as a gun runner, like he has to pretend to be the expert, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. so so he has to kind of portray this image and then he has to live up to that. The evidence we see is he's actually pretty clever at sort of, you know, manipulating situations. But he's not that clever, and Jackie, I mean, Jackie is also not that clever, but she's way cleverer than him, you know? Oh, she yeah. She outclasses him at, at every turn. Whereas Melanie, Melanie is bright. Melanie Melanie is good. Like, she sees things for who, what they are, but um, ultimately, she loses because... Um, well, she she underestimates. Uh, she estimates. She underestimates Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. The the thing of Wardell too is is the women that he keeps. Like he he's got three or four girlfriends scattered around the city. Yeah. The majority the majority of them are criminals at the very least, and a couple of them are, are at least 
once he ends up like hooking on drugs and stuff, you know, they're they're basically kept women for him, you know. They they're dependent yeah. upon him. So I mean, yeah, he he is he, he's clever in in the sense that he's like he's got this sort of an animalistic cleverness, right? You know. Right, right. I mean, I, I guess it, it's just sort of that, that um, particularly within the film. I mean, probably more so than in the book. Right. Um, he's definitely portrayed as. Uh, not just an animal intelligence, but a but a real sophistication. Like he he is bright enough to kind of know who he is. He has self reflective knowledge. I think a lot of that comes out of Jackson's performance too. Yeah, because well, Jackson Jackson gives him. I mean, and, and this is another. I mean, just a total difference in terms uh, Leonard's novels. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, I've said on this on this podcast a couple of times. Like, I'm a big fan of Justified. The mm-hmm. uh, series of Timothy Oliphant, which uh, strikes me as, from what I've read of Leonard's novels, which isn't a ton, one of the most accurate, just because it is just like a bunch of fuck-ups, like, fucking up. <laughs> yeah. You know? Whereas, like, uh, a lot of the cinematic a- adaptations, you know, trying to make people, like, more clever and kind of, like, clean up a bunch of stuff. Whereas Leonard understands these are a bunch of fuck-ups, you know? But but also, one of the things with uh, Leonard's, uh, one of the things with Ron Punch is that, again, everybody's kind of covered with this level of slime in terms mm-hmm. of like everybody's kind of low class and stussy whereas uh, Tarantino kind of gives people this a uh, little bit more of a gloss you know it's a little bit cleaner and that's in terms of both the just the physical portrayal in terms of the way the camera treats them but also the uh, you know a lot of the kind of details get lost on the sideline you know although it's kind of interesting that the characters here are they're definitely changed characters by the time they hit this film like uh, if, if you look at the original book with these characters they're much more innocent i mean they're scumbags but they're not like ordell's not the cold-blooded killer that he becomes in this film sure Uh, and and lewis definitely changes from his time in prison apparently like something in lewis just changed in prison where he comes out different and undependable and i do like that ordell is he's not quite a total psychopath like he has his moments where he becomes that he's much more sort of i guess just maybe amoral about his dealings with people if you become a liability to me i'll kill you like he well, he, just... he, he he wants this million dollars i mean i mean dollars is a lot of money like fuck you mm-hmm. yeah i want my money yeah you know i've worked hard for it quote unquote, you know i've worked hard for it in quotes you know um you you can see in the performance from jackson though like and th- and this is later on the film, and I mean we're just going to jump around from part to part I, of this film. I think I I, I assume anybody listening to this has seen. I mean, if you haven't seen Jackie Brown, go fucking watch. Jackie <laughs> yeah, Brown. go fuck it's yourself one, and then go watch the film. It's, it's one of the greatest films that's kind of ever made. Like I mean, you know, like I not to not to speak for you, but like it is. It just um, is. I'm in total agreement. We've um, we've we've built this entire series around the fact that we're going to talk about Jackie Brown, and I feel really bad that I didn't do more of the like prep work, except like. Uh, I was sitting and drinking, so, you know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But, I mean, you you get to the near the end of the film where the whole caper's gone down, and then uh, Ordell is in the van with Lewis, and they're talking about what Uh went down. He killed Melanie, and he's like, is she dead? Well, pretty much. What do you mean, pretty much? Like, did you kill her or not? And it's like, yeah, I shot her twice. Where? Well, in the chest and the stomach. Okay, because we don't need her living, because if that bitch stalks... We're all fucked. But you see in his face, you see in his performance that he gets a newfound respect for Lewis there because he's like, okay, he did the same thing I would have done, 
if right. I was in his place. And then it's not a, even like a couple minutes later where they're they're working it out. They're working out what the fuck happened. And he suddenly realizes that Lewis is he's expendable. Like he mentions, oh, I saw Max Cherry. You saw Max Cherry and you didn't mention it to me? Well, I didn't think about it. Fuck, you're you're useless to me. I'm gonna kill you. Like you're you're just gone. I, like that. I'm I'm gonna challenge a little bit where mm-hmm. I think in that scene where you know uh, Lewis is describing, oh, I shot her here and here, you know, etc. You know, yeah. that's uh, Ordell sort of say this guy that I used to trust because we used to do jobs together, who mm-hmm. went to prison, has come out and he's just. I've been trusting him. I've been kind of treating him as somebody that I can work with, but ultimately that trust is misguided. And the reason that I know that is because he just did this fucking thing. And like, uh, well, yeah, it's, that sort was... of the, it's sort of the beginning of that. And then when he, he like, you like, what you saw my cherry and didn't think anything about it. Like, fuck you. And, uh, the last line he says to Lewis, uh, when Lewis is dying is, you know, your ass used to be beautiful. And, yeah, you're, um, you asked me used to be beautiful, man. What the fuck happened to you? Yeah. Which, which isn't necessarily a, a reference in terms of, like, Lewis actually used to be beautiful as much as Ordell used to think he was beautiful, you know? Right, right. So, so uh, um, yeah, I I could switch over to that. I, I, could, I could agree with that. Yeah. The whole thing, I mean, and I think one of the brilliant things about the film is that it does sort of take, uh, one of the things about the novel which Tarantino captures, I guess, is that you can sort of interpret things in different ways. And you can kind of right. uh, take it for what you want it to be, you know. And for, for me, the, the, you know, again, I've seen this a bunch of times. I've, I've literally sat and like watched this and watched this and watched this. That sequence in the van, Ordell is just sort of, he finds out that Melanie is dead, or if he's like, where's Melanie? What's going on here? And uh, it's all about the kind of gradual realization that Lewis is not who Ordell thought he was. You know? Right. He he takes... Okay, I can, I can actually maybe switch over a little bit and agree with that, because... Yeah, okay, so he, he realizes that Lewis is changed to the point where he took Ordell's instructions to a level that he had not intended... He's basically saying, you know, if, if Melanie gives you shit, slap her around, pull her hair, but make her do the job. Right. Lewis just was like... Well, and took- Lewis, Lewis is a fucking animal. I mean, mm-hmm. Lewis, Lewis, is, Lewis is, a, is a man who, throughout the film, is uh, completely ruled by his impulses. He, because- he's, a, he's kind of a, like, he comes out of prison kind of a sedate animal who's just like... He's, waiting, he's, he's, waiting for a trigger to. You see him sitting in the chair at the beginning, and uh-huh. uh, you know he fucks Melanie because, like, well, well, why not? You know, yeah. like, sure. And then, like, kind of apologizes for it later, and he's just, yeah. I mean, it's a brilliant. I mean, this is honestly my favorite De Niro performance. Like, I would say it's his best one in. Well, I, I think it's his last great one, honestly. Sure, sure. Not that I don't love him in Taxi Driver, or not that I don't love him in in a bunch of other stuff. Right. I mean, you know, I, but. In terms of preference, this is the one that really impresses me because it's, it's, it's such not a "quote unquote" De Niro performance. Oh, it's it's yeah. very atypical of his um, usual shit. In in some of the commentary, you know, Tarantino is like De Niro likes a, a lot of direction. You know, he likes a lot of you know he wants you to kind of sit and tell him what you want. You know, mm. and you really kind of get that sense of De Niro has kind of disappeared into this character in a way that you don't necessarily see De Niro do all the time. He's just kind of very willing to kind of do the, 
I'm going to do the De Niro thing, but it, Tarantino is a strong enough director to go. I kind of just want you to sit there and be blank, you know. And and there is a sense. I mean, we did um, we did Fargo not that long ago, a long time ago for us, but only oh, a few months ago. But he does he does that kind of blank thing, you know. He does. Yeah, that, he's so, he's very much he's very much the uh, Gus. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, but but even but even like Jerry Lindegard is kind of the the comparison. Not that uh. to have like a direct thing, but you know, William Tracy was. Kind of, he said, "I just want to play this blank." You know, De Niro kind of does the same thing to some degree, not to the same degree, because it doesn't work within the film. Certainly, in this film full of giant personalities, you know, he's basically this sort of flat, affectless kind of guy. You know, yeah, he he downplays it a lot, and and the whole point is he's a guy who's basically getting high and you know hanging out with a pretty blonde girl. Mm -hmm. You know. But he's, but he, yeah, you're right. He's an animal. He's been broken by prison. He's been changed to yeah. that point where he, and, it, and it's not even, it's not even he gets set off by a trigger. Like he's just, it's so casual with him. The way he kills Mel- Melanie is just incredibly casual. Like he, just, I mean, he, he, he he's just, he's just pissed off at her because yeah, she, all she's doing, and then um, my wife watched this. Uh, she had seen it like maybe once before, but didn't really remember it. But she watched it with me the other night, and, uh, you know, she was like, you know, why did he do that, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, after he shits her? And I'm like, well, wait, like, I mean, really, it's just annoying him, like, that's it, you know, yeah. and, and that's just who he fucking is, you know, so uh, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that we haven't talked about our titular character yet. That's what I was about to say. Let's talk about the performances here. Let's talk about Pam Greer's Jackie Brown. And this is a change from the book, Rum Punch, if you were not aware. Yeah. Uh, listeners out it there. Was, it was Jackie Burke in the Jackie original Burke novel. And, and it was and a white she was She was 40-something and white, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Pam Greer is here. And holy I mean, fuck. I mean, yeah. career career performance. I mean, just, yeah. What, what do you have to, I mean, God. She's, she's fucking phenomenal. I, I totally agree with that, and uh, this is coming from... I, I don't know how many classic Pam Greer films you've seen, but coming from myself, I've seen most of her classic 70s stuff. I've, I've seen Coffee, I've seen Foxy Brown. Okay, yeah. So, uh, I think this is her best performance. I, 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 but, but, I mean... It's her best role. It's it's not mm-hmm. just it's not just a performance basis. I mean, although it is. I mean, she's brilliant in this, but she's given a real character. You know, right. she's not just asked to be like badass, low budget, you know, black woman with a shotgun or whatever. You know, she she's asked well, to. I, yeah, I mean, if this was really a black exploitation film, if Tarantino was just going to do a black exploitation film, because this is not a black exploitation film, by the way. Anyone listening, if you've it, never it, seen this film, it. it it's a homage in ways to a black exploitation, but this is a different thing. And Django Unchained is, is more of a black exploitation film, right? And that's still right, not right. a fucking black exploitation film. Yeah, this is but, this is this is a character based crime drama that happens to have a black woman at its lead. And if exactly. you think that's a black exploitation film, then go fuck yourself. Yeah, you're dumb. If this was a real black exploitation, Pam Greer black exploitation film should be shoot shotgunning motherfuckers with their tits out. But she's not doing that in this film. No. It's a much more. Sub- I mean, she doesn't. She doesn't fire a gun in this film. No, no. I mean, she holds a gun. She threatens someone with a gun in a way of delivering dialogue. You know, which is a very Tarantino-esque thing to do. Is 
to make the threat of violence out there in a way of forcing conversation and reconciliation on some level, you know, well, negotiation. T- Tarantino deconstructs Pam Greer, the movie star in this film, yeah. because in the opening scene, okay, so you see her mm-hmm. uh, on, on the, uh, what, escalator? It's not an escalator, but whatever the fuck she's standing on there that's moving her, the moving sidewalk, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know if if those things exist in airports. I've never been in one. They, so they do. They do. They do. Okay. So she's standing on that. She's looking tough. She's looking strong. She's looking proud. That's Pam Greer. You know her. You love her from their '70s films, where she's an ultimate fucking badass. And you you get that. You you immediately fucking get that. And then when she gets off it, all of a sudden she's got anxiety. She's rushing to get to her job on time because she's late for a fucking job. Mm-hmm. It, it deconstructs her right there where it's like, okay, this is not Foxy Brown. This is a woman 20 years removed from that who is desperate, who has a shitty job, who has no real future. And you can see that in her performance. I mean, she's she's the, not... The, the economic anxiety hangs yeah. over this film and particularly not just the Jackie Brown character, but the Max Cherry character. And I hope we talk about those two at some point, but mm-hmm. it, it is, I like the way it is. It is a deconstruction of that character is a deconstruction of who that character is. Yeah. But, it, but it's a, it's a like saying, this is what it means to be like, you can be a badass woman. You can be this character. And she is absolutely yeah. through this film. She's completely fucking badass, but she's still a woman. She still exists within an economic situation, and she's desperate to hang on to this job to feed herself, which is the most searing indictment of capitalism imaginable. But like, yeah. she's definitely tough. She's at the very least street smart. I like you, you said she's not necessarily super fucking intelligent, but she she is smart. She's tough. Well, she doesn't have the academic knowledge, but she's clearly clever. I mean, she's the smartest person in the film. I mean, you know, within this world, yeah, she's... And she's smart. And and she's put in, you know, between the rock and the hard place. She's desperate as fuck. She gets caught. She gets caught with the money. She gets caught with the fucking drugs. And the ATF and the... and uh, What? The NARC are... What or uh, F- FBI? The FBI, FBI yeah. the FBI. Uh, Michael Bowen is the FBI agent, and then Michael Keaton as a uh, Ray Nicolette, who also ATF. showed up in Out of Sight, by the way. Out of Sight, and um, a bunch of the other. Like he shows up as a character in like four or five other things. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, um, he was even he was even in the uh, Karen Sisko uh, TV series. Oh, really? Yeah, with uh, oh. Carla. Good- Gugino as uh, as, that, as the uh, as the Jennifer Lopez character in that yeah shit but shit. he showed up in the what is it the the big the big bounce or something which is the uh, Owen Wilson oh the remake yeah I, I have yeah. the original big bounce which is the yeah. one to watch but that's a yeah, no, no, that's, like that's a different in, movie down the line <laughs> he was in that I mean it really is like he just kind of shows up like anytime Ray Nicolette I mean it it is this sort of like he was in this and then you sort of get the 
he just kind of really liked it, and so they just kind of kept asking him to come back. But he's in a, <laughs> a bunch of stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he's straight in this. I mean, this is this is. I mean, to me, this is the Michael Keaton performance. You know. Yeah, but this is an interesting thing because turning Jackie Brown into a black woman instead of Jackie Burke, the white woman, mm-hmm. it actually makes her desperation a lot more believable because they're really. This is this is a black woman being pinned. Between well, a rock well, and a hard place, well, and, and and in the novel, you kind of, see, you know, and this is this is just, I mean, maybe Leonard's cynicism. He treats her as this sort of desperate character, you right. know, as, as somebody who's maybe cleverer than the other people around her, but also just kind of a figure of fun. Leonard has a very negative opinion of, of human nature, whereas Tarantino fucking loves Pam Greer, and he's mm-hmm. going to give... I mean, um, the backstory is that Pam Greer uh, auditioned for Pulp Fiction. She was wanting to be yep. uh, one of the, uh, uh, I think, uh, Eric Stoltz's wife. Yeah, or, he was going to be her girl, his girlfriend or wife or whatever in that, but he he didn't believe Eric Stoltz could boss her around. Exactly. Which, you know, yeah, I can't believe that. Um, which, yeah, no, Eric Stoltz, like, go fuck yourself, Eric Stoltz, you know? Like, <laughs> in that regard, like, I, I like Eric Stoltz, you know, but, like... Yeah, but she, you know, she'd stick the adrenal needle in his fucking eye and tell him to fuck off. Yeah, you tell him to fuck off, and then, like, she would go in and take uh, Mia Wallace to the hospital. It would be fine, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'd, t- she'd take charge of that fucking situation. Um, <laughs> but she auditioned, and Tarantino's like, I fucking know who you are. Wait, I'm going to write a part for you. And I can only imagine Pam Greer's like, well, I need to eat now, motherfucker. But um, yeah, yeah. she accepted it, and then, well, he came back two years later and was like, here's, here's, the, here's the role I have for you. I mean, it's career best. I mean, God. Yeah. But, but he has re-envisioned this character. Like, he has taken the basic storyline, but he's also made her much more sympathetic, just based on who she is, and and partly based on the romance. I buy the romance in the movie much more so than I buy the romance in the the book. Yeah. Um, I buy the character more. I buy her, uh, I mean, and, and partly it's by, like, he trains the camera on her. He asks her to emote he asks her he he humanizes her which leonard for all of his strengths as a as a as a plot uh guy for all of his strengths is kind of portraying a world leonard is not about giving characters sympathy there's right. hardly ever a character with sympathy in yeah. uh, a leonard novel whereas tarantino for all of his faults people say like oh he's all about style he's all about you know no no i disagree and you look at mm-hmm. jackie brown you look at the difference between jackie brown and rum punch and tarantino is all about giving these people humanity within this uh, stylized world, you know? Yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't overtake Leonard's narrative here. He, he interprets Leonard's narrative and puts his own little spin on it, but he takes the character of Jackie Burke, turns it into Jackie Brown, and with Pam Greer's performance here, you really get a sense that even though, yeah, she is, she's tough. She's fucking tough because she's been through a lot of shit, and she's been hardened by that. And she has this scheme, and she's slightly smarter than these motherfuckers that she's trying to play. But at the same time, throughout the entire film, you always get the sense that she's worried that her scheme's going to fall apart at the last minute. Like, she is scared shitless that it's going to end up bad. She's always got an out, right? You know, Mm -hmm. when uh, Robert Furster, when uh, Matt Cherry is questioning her, Mm -hmm. what do you do if this happens? Well... I mean, ultimately, it's like, I just say, I don't know what that is. 
and uh, I'm not in jail, and at least I tried. And, like, right. that's the end of it, you know? She's always got, uh, she's always thought about it far enough to say, and then there's at a certain point, I just go, yeah, I don't know, you know? And mm-hmm. and when you when you see the kind of questioning that uh, Ray Nicolette does, uh, Michael Keaton's character does towards the right. end, um, that's exactly what she does. She gets to a point where she's like, well, I don't know, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't have an answer for you. Because that's the point at which I just I, I don't know what you want, you know, and um, but she's believable because she's authentic because yeah, she's she's great. Um, God, I love Pam Grier in this. Um, she's yeah. so amazing. It's an it's an amazing performance. She, <laughs> uh, I, I've seen things written about how she was picked because first off, you know, Quentin Tarantino wanted to have Pam Grier in something that he would do because he fucking worships her but at the same time it's i need to pick a character that is 44 but looks 35 and yeah, <laughs> yeah that works here because yeah she does look a lot younger than what she's supposed to be in this even though she was like at 44 at the time yeah, yeah. well and uh max sherry has a line you know well you know i can't feel too bad about you know you feel <laughs> bad about your looks because i'll bet you know you know well yeah other it, than it, an afro you don't look really look different than you did at 29 and then she has a, you know, well, my ass ain't the same, you know, bigger. Well, that ain't a bad thing. And I'm like, yeah, you go, Max Cherry. I'm yeah. with you. Yeah, Good no, job. No, Max Max Cherry makes some subtle hints where she borrows his gun, borrows his gun. Yeah. And he comes the next day to collect it, and she, he's hanging out with her, and she plays the fucking Delphonics, and yeah, like, yeah, that's really good and stuff. And she's like, "You want some coffee?" And he's like, "Yeah, okay." Oh shit, my milk went bad while I was in jail. Could you take it black? He's like, "Yeah, black's fine." Like that—that—that's yeah. that, that's not subtle. Uh, no, no, there's <laughs> there's such a there's oh my god, that sequence is uh, well, that scene is maybe my favorite. It's my favorite. It's my favorite in the film. One of my favorite things that Tarantino's ever made, and I, I think we do have to talk about is this Tarantino's best film. Um, uh, that is mature adults well, flirting to each other. I mean, you know, I'm I'm 37. I flirt with people. This is how you know. But but also, she has a line where she says, you know, I'm 44 years old. I'm working the shittiest job I can have in this industry. If I can't travel, I lose my job, and that scares me way more than anything a Nordell can do to me. Right. And that is such a powerful moment, you know. Yeah. And, for any and... for anybody, even when I was like 17 when I first watched this film, like I felt it. But now I'm like, oh god, yeah, no, I'm I'm. You know, you you go. This is not just an indictment of you know Ordell. This is an indictment of the system in which we live. Right, and and Max Cherry just totally falls in love with her, and yeah. he totally sympathizes and worries about her, and realizes her plight, and he also realizes his own plight in the same at the same time. Like he, he's like, yeah, I'm I'm at a dead end as well. I mean, he he can relate to her. It's later revealed that on that night, the night before he goes to that thing, he decided to leave his bell bonds business right. because, you know, fuck that, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I, I love those, just those scenes with him. And, I mean, they're very true to life for not only the characters, but just for the actors portraying them because these are two actors who 
really didn't have a lot of work at the time, especially Robert Forrester, who was... And Robert Forrester did the hair plug thing very early on. This was 1980s when he was an alligator. Um, <laughs> sure. Where, where, well, actually, it was just after Alligator. He was losing his hair, and there were some jokes in the movie Alligator where he jokes about losing his hair, and someone told him, I mean, you haven't made it yet. So you might want to do something about your fucking hair if you're going to, like, have a career in Hollywood. So he did something about it. And, you know, doesn't look so good because it's the early hair transplant kind of thing. But, you know, he's enough of a fucking man to admit to it and incorporate it into his character, you know. Yeah, I, I did something about it, and I feel pretty good about it, you know. It's such a, I mean, you know, I, I hate to, I mean, I hate to get all feminist about it, but... I, I don't hate getting off of this event. Like, <laughs> it, it is about like this expression of toxic masculinity. It's like, no, 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 I didn't do anything with my hair. Like, I, I, I'm a real man. I didn't lose my hair. It's like, no, I lost my hair. I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like how I looked. I felt like less of a man. I did something about it, and now I feel better about it. I look at it, it looks like me. Fuck you. What do you want? <laughs> That's such a healthier perspective about life. I love that scene, and I love this relationship, because... Throughout the whole thing, like she's kind of dragging him along in this. Yeah, and like he's willingly being dragged. She, she's trying to like say, like, look, would you do this? Will you do this with me? And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really. But she's clever, and she. Well, me. he 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 wants a change. I mean, he well, he, he wa- wants well, something she, different. She convinces him that she has thought it out, and mm-hmm. then once you know, he kind of sees, oh, this is the thing you're trying to do. Like he's like, all right, yeah, like, yeah, I, I get it, but. You know, even even at the end, you know, he's you know he he recognizes you did the work, like yeah, good job. And he he's he never takes over from her in the oh. in the search of the film, despite the fact that he does some really amazing things, particularly uh, in terms of confronting Ordell and, and, and that sort of thing. But, oh um, man, yeah, I mean he that scene where Ordell and him talks, where he he comes to or uh, Ordell's. One of his girlfriend's places where he's hiding out after he's at, he's at Sharama's place. Yeah, the 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 girlfriend Georgia who uh, fresh off a kid chicken coop, you know. Yeah, yeah, he comes in there and man, that conversation they have between each other where he has to convince Ordell to come to the bail bonds office and collect the money from Jackie Brown. Man, that fucking scene is fucking great because they're they're verbally jousting right there. Like they're 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 trying to. You, you look at Robert Forrester in that moment. You look at Max Sherry mm. in that moment. Like when they're in the car and Ordell has the line. If we go in there and she starts giving me some bullshit, like the money somewhere else, you're the first person that's gonna die. Yeah, I'm gonna shoot you right she, in the head. Then I'm gonna, gonna shoot, shoot her in the head. Kneecaps. Yeah. And like he's threatening Robert Forrester in that moment, and Robert Forrester just looks over and he's. You get the sense, like, I've been a bail bondsman for, like, 19 years. <laughs> I, I've been threatened before. I've been, like, I've dealt with bigger shitheads than you. Like, there is this, like, sense of, yeah, yeah, seriously, Ordell, you think you're a big bad motherfucker. And maybe you are in terms of the amount of money you brought in. And you've done a great job, but go fuck yourself in terms no, of... No, yeah. Uh, I, am, I am so beyond being threatened by you at this point in my life. Yeah. You know? It, it's been established early on that Robert Forrester's character, Max Cherry, is the sort of world-weary guy who has seen it all. He talks about how he sat in some person's place several hours with the shotgun 
and the entire place smelled <laughs> like a cat stun piss. Gun. With a stun yeah, gun. Yeah, stun gun, right. The place yeah. smelled like cat piss. And, and he, she was like, well, you know, what would you have done? I would have took him in. I would have stunned him and took him in or whatever. He showed up, but he never did. So what, what do you mean? Well, that's, that's my job. Like he he just yeah. kind of he just kind of shrugs like that's my job that's what yeah. I do you know and uh, a tiny Lister um, uh, yeah he's really good in his bit role pardon, pardon, pardon me the Mandingo looking motherfucker that Mandingo um, looking motherfucker there yeah what? Um, there there is a there is a certain level of uh, and this is a little bit problematic written by a white man but there is the uh, you know. This is the big badass guy who can track down anybody who nonetheless like works for Max Cherry and sort of right. respects him. And that, that does kind of give us a sense of yeah, Max Cherry is like good at what he does. You know. Like Yeah, I mean they they make mention of that in the dialogue. I mean Samuel Jackson's talking with Max Cherry at one point in the bail bonds office. Who's that in the pit who's that big man dingo looking motherfucker in the picture with you? Oh that's that's my uh, that's my guy, you know, uh, works for me. Oh, but it was your idea to take that picture, wasn't it? It is a challenge to uh, to Max Cherry's, you know, sort of, well, yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't acknowledge it, but he kind of yeah. looks away and then just kind of moves on, and, which is an acknowledgement of uh, the truth of that. And yeah. it's interesting that none of that is in the book either, you know. No, no, no. This, this, is, this is Tarantino understanding the dynamics at work here. Tarantino is more sophisticated on a race than I think people give him credit for sometimes. I and Jackie you. Brown is the, uh, is the sort of case study in that. Can I just say, which, which isn't to say he's blameless? I don't. Like no, no. Claim, but, but can I just say, fuck Spike Lee? Can I just say that right here? Spike Lee is too much of a harsh judgment on him just because he uses the N word a lot of times in his movies. Like that seems I, like the, there is. I this is this is a, a moment where I'm going to say there is a thing where I'm eventually going to start writing an essay series about Tarantino. And mm-hmm. I'm going to have to write it at some point about Tarantino's use of the N-word. That's important and complicated, but I think Spike Lee, despite the fact that I respect Spike Lee in a lot of ways, with regards to his artistic impulse and product is undeniably important, is uh, incredibly simplistic in terms of his view of that. And I would not, if you're an African-American person listening to this, who uh, disagrees with me? I'm not going to challenge that, but uh, Tarantino is making his films for largely white audiences. The fucking Oscar voters uh, need to fucking hear the N word a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the 85 year old white people who are like, you know, voting on the Oscars maybe need to understand what racial reality is a little bit more. You know. <laughs> Any more like anything from the characters you want to bring up? Or uh... I mean, God, I mean, we could, I mean, we could spend an hour talking about any of them. Uh, as yeah, far as I'm concerned. No, I mean, we talked about Jackie Brown. We talked about Max Cherry. We talked about. I mean, we really haven't talked about Ardell, despite the fact that he's sort of the the main, you know, antagonist of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, but 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 I feel like we kind of have just just based on. Uh, I I do want to mention like one. He moment. shapes the whole narrative. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of this is just the part where he's in the van with Lewis and the camera takes the time to watch him just tuck his head down and think through how he just got fucked over and who fucked him over. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. Like, you don't tend to see that on film where a character thinks through what happened to them. Like, it just goes from plot point to plot point. And here, Ordell... I, maybe I downplayed how smart he is a little bit when I initially talked about him. 
I, I don't think he's stupid. I just don't think he's super fucking intelligent as far as criminals oh, well, go. Like, I mean, none of them, none of them are no. super geniuses. I mean, and that's the, that's the key, you know, because what? ultimately, I mean, Jackie Brown, like her plan is fucking nonsense. Like mm-hmm. when you, when you look at it, like anybody with any level of systematic intelligence, if Ray Nicolette had like searched through the fucking bag, all of this would be <laughs> over. You know, the whole point is just, she's smart enough to kind of get by. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but uh, just, that just, that scene that scene in the van, by the way, which you mentioned, that's uh, when Roger Ebert reviewed this film in '97. That was his intro paragraph, is talking about that scene, which I, which I speak of as a positive, by the way. Like, you know, it builds tension too because this is a scene where it's it's a point of view shot from behind him and Lewis, and then it focuses in on him thinking about this shit. I can't remember if he does it before or after this, where he brings the gun into play. And it disappears under the seat. And it sets up tension between him and Lewis after that, like where you don't know what the fuck's going to happen because you don't see what the fuck he's doing. He's, at this point, he's pulled out the gun, he counted the shells, he counted the bullets left mm. in, the, in the clip. And we're like, okay, it's two, which is exactly what you told me. Puts it back in, and then he holds the gun like to his uh, face. Right. And he thinks. Then at the end, he says, It's Jackie Brown. Jackie yeah. Brown's got my money. And then, uh, you know, Lewis says, well, either she's got it or the cops got it. And then he yeah, and then it goes to Max Cherry. You, yeah. you saw Max Cherry? Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, you know what I, I didn't even think about? I'm like, Max Cherry, Max Cherry was there. Fuck, Max Cherry was there? You know all the bill bonds, man. They're <laughs> crooked, as a, crooked as a barrel full of snakes. Yeah, and then he shoots him. Because, you know, yeah, so yeah, he has some gun in his hand the whole time. The yeah. fuck happened to you, man? My God, have we have we both seen this film too many times? Yes, uh, yeah, or not enough times. I I may very well uh, before I go to bed tonight, or like as I'm drifting off to sleep, I may put the film back on just to uh, just to enjoy it one more time after after discussing it. Oh, but God. but yeah, no, I mean, God, there's so many great characters in it. There's so much. There's so many great moments. Um, all right, we should talk greatest Tarantino film or not the greatest Tarantino film. For me, this is the greatest. Sure. I can just say unequivocally, it's just, for me, the greatest. And I do appreciate a lot of the, the sort of strides he makes in a lot of his uh, subsequent films and the directions, he's, the directions he goes. And I, I think I do know, like, your sort of your opinions on some of his later films. And I do appreciate that point of view as far as stuff he does with his later films. But here, for me... I think it just comes back to I'm a fucking crime film kind of fucking yeah. mark, you know, like I, I just, I love really great crime films. And for me, this is probably the greatest modern crime film ever done. I um, mean, this, I, I would land on, like, if you're talking about like noir and neo noir, like crime film, whatever, like this, this is in the top 10 mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, Put this next to The Big Sleep. Put this next to Chinatown. Put this next to, like, anything. I mean, any of the films we've talked about on this podcast for the entire 99 episodes we've done, this is in the top five of any film we've discussed. And this is, I mean, for me, this is top five favorite films of all time. Sure, sure. It's in there for me. I mean, this, as much as I love this film, and as many times as I've seen it, I do love this film. It's a 
very great film in terms of its structure, in terms of what it's doing. For me, Tarantino kind of did this and then moved on from this. So mm -hmm. he, he's all of his future films, particularly uh, once he gets to Inglorious Bastards, is doing something very, very different. But I would land on Inglorious Bastards is my like pick for the greatest Tarantino film. Right. This is either number two or three. You know. Um, yeah. You. You see where where I fall in this one is I feel like this is the one where he challenged he challenged himself where like he right. stepped out out of the box from what he was doing because I think even he said himself he was scared that his dialogue was going to be a gimmick with him. Where, sure. And, I, mean, I mean, well, the thing is, the thing is, like I saw this and I, and I saw this when I was seventeen. Or mm -hmm. Probably eighteen. I saw this when I was eighteen. I came out when I was seventeen, but I saw this uh, in like. This was a this was a blind buy for me on VHS. Like I'd never seen it, but I bought it because it was Tarantino, and I just I, I, I rented this on VHS. Yeah, yeah. I just I still have that VHS somewhere. I'm gonna oh. I I'm gonna take a photo of it, and then you can put nice. it up as the uh, as the like the photo of the for this uh, podcast episode. I will do it. it. Yeah. No, I I saw this and like didn't get it. Like I got it. Like I understood mm -hmm. kind of thematically what it was going for but it was like man it's slow and it doesn't do anything like and the whole thing was tarantino made reservoir dogs which was his look at me be badass look at me do the thing that i do and then he made yeah. Pulp Fiction, which perfected all the things that he did in reservoir dogs right right and then everybody else started doing that thing yeah. And Tarantino knows, I can't do that again. I have to do something else. And so, A, he adapts somebody else's material, which mm -hmm. he acknowledges, I've kind of always been doing Elmar Leonard anyway, so why not just adapt <laughs> to Elmar Leonard? But also, let's slow down. Let's do something else. Let's not do the kind of big dialogue sequences. Let's do, let's not talk about cheeseburgers, you know, in this, in this movie. <laughs> And makes this really weird movie, and I really didn't like it the first like five times I watched it. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, I liked it, but didn't really get it. But now I watch it and go, like, "This is just perfect. This is exactly what we want it to be," you know. But then after this film, it takes seven years off to figure out what do I do after? What do I do after this? You know, for Tarantino, this was his capstone. And then what he was trying to do after this was he was doing a lot of producing. He was doing a lot of, you know, bringing films back out. He was, like, uh, you know, uh, putting out, like, DVD releases in uh, Detroit 9000 and other stuff like that. Yeah. But the whole thing was he spent a number of years figuring out what he wanted to do from here because this is, in some ways, the uh, the perfection of that kind of original three-film sequence. Right, you know? right. And then when he comes back, he's doing he does Kill Bill, which is a completely different kind of film. You yeah. Know? Here's the thing: I I won't argue that he became a better filmmaker after this and did more interesting, better films. But for me, mm -hmm. still, I consider it his best piece of work through and through. I think everything there, there's a culmination here for me that yeah. I just appreciate everything from just the structure, the adaptation, uh, the way he takes Elmore's characters and his words and stays true to them while cutting the fat out of them and bringing in these actors with these great performances and switching your expectations with his casting and the way he implements his soundtrack where he's got all these great fucking songs that kind of echo uh, Jackie Brown and Max Cherry's past where... Yep. 
they they would have been listening to this stuff in the 1970s and and they're, they Jackie Brown still has a vinyl collection and Max Cherry is hanging on <laughs> is and it, buying is, uh, is, cassette is, tapes is isn't the vinyl collection like the uh the ultimate that's that actually rings true today 20 years later you know well now you only buy vinyl because uh you you don't bother with it the CD anymore. I mean, it's funny. 1997 is a basically the latest that a film could be that you actually show uh, a sequence in somebody's house that there's not a computer somewhere. You know? No, no, yeah, like, this is one of the last analog films. Yeah, it's... analog to its core, and I think that's also another thing that Tarantino needed to take a few years off because can you imagine the film he would have made in 2002? Alongside John Woo's Mission Impossible, or whatever, uh, yeah, you, know? it, it, you you never see a Tarantino film where he has a CD. No characters ever own CDs or play CDs in his films, right? So um, that's why I thought that we know that Tarantino himself owns a ton of CDs. You know? Yeah, I. But also, he's also you know he is uh, as far as film goes, he's a celluloid snob. He, he's yeah. he's the, he's the guy who champion celluloid and he still uses it to this day i mean and he's he said he said it's only making i mean he's gonna make two more films and mm-hmm. then he's done and uh my god what a au revoir when you when you look at the eight films he's made fuck i mean jesus christ man you know yeah when, i mean you you can criticize the stuff he's done outside of actual directing some of the stuff he's produced or written or whatever but if you, <laughs> you, if you, can, if you, you can criticize his acting performances in Little Nicky, for instance. Well, <laughs> goddamn, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but you look at his actual fucking films, and you look at his plan for himself, where, you know, I'm going to do this many films, I'm going to stop. You really can't criticize the guy. Like, he knows what he's doing, and he knows what he wants to do, and his shit has been quality. Like, it's gone up and down a little bit, but, I mean... Compare it to his contemporaries, who, for the most part, have made some real fucking dogs in their career. There, there, there's not a bad film in his in his no. directorial, in terms of his feature film production. There's there's not a single bad one. I will fight anybody, and and he's it's not because he's been playing it safe. To the contrary, no, you know? he's just he's, um, he's he's calculating his stuff. He's yeah, yeah he, and he doesn't want to. He's just he's just an artist who doesn't want to make a shitty film, so he yeah. takes his fucking time, which is something to be uh, commended. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, Jackie Brown, brilliant film. I mean, whether we call it the greatest Tarantino, I mean, if you're only going to watch one, I, Jackie Brown's probably the one I tell you to watch, because if you're only going to watch one, it's probably the one you're going to find aesthetically most pleasing. Um, yeah, if you're yeah. A, if you're a Tarantino hater... And you haven't seen Jackie Brown? That's the one that you should watch because it's the least "quote unquote" Tarantino-esque of his filmography. I have other preferences in terms of the ones that I prefer, right. and I think uh, I mean again, *Inglorious Bastards* is the one that I just I I just can't get beyond that. Like that's the that's the genius one, but that's because I have deeply personal reasons for thinking this is like one of the mm-hmm. greatest films ever made. Um, *Inglorious Bastards* makes my like top five personal list. You know, quite honestly, whereas Jackie Brown doesn't, but Jackie Brown is way, way fucking up there. Um, it's a, it's a brilliant film, and uh, I'm so happy that we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just want to mention one other scene on this film before we get yeah, to yeah. trivia or whatever. We can talk about um, whatever you want to. Believe me, we, I could talk about. Sorry, we haven't really been talking about Jackie Brown. We can talk about Jackie Brown 
for another four hours, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> and how brilliant it is, you know? Yeah, and this is something I want to, I just want to say is, for me, one of the greatest all-time movie scenes I've ever seen in my life that just strikes me every goddamn time I see it and gives me goosebumps. And this is just the ending of Jackie Brown. It's it's the scene showing Jackie Brown in her car. Yep. It's point of view showing her, and she's listening to... And actually, she's not listening to it. Uh, I, I want to stress that. She's, she's in her car. She's driving away from Max Cherry. She has this look on her face of a bit of regret, but at the same time, she's looking forward to her new life. And across 110th Street from uh, Bobby Womack, it's playing. Yep. And... Here's the thing. For the most of this film, and this is something Tarantino usually tries to do for the most part, in, in his, at least in his early films, uh, when you hear music, there's usually a source on film that you can identify where it's coming from, whether sure. it be a radio or a player of some sort. Uh, Across 110th Street is not something in this film that comes from any source. Uh, okay. So at the beginning of the film, you hear it, where she's on the sort of escalator or whatever going going by so you, that's the intro and then the book ends with her driving away listening to this playing so it's not playing in her world at all it, well, it, it, it's, it's it's not it's not it's not incidental music it's it's uh uh, uh it, it, I, I it's going to be clever i was going to i was going to explain it to the but, audience but it's fine yeah, but I mean, she's driving and she's not listening to it on her car. Like that—that's the thing. She's right, not right. listening to it. But it's—it's yeah, it's for the audience. It's for yeah, the audience. It's for the audience. But as she's driving, she starts to mouth the words as it's playing. Sure. She starts to sing it, and it feels like at that point her character has broken the fourth wall of this film, where she's starting to sing along to it, and she's leaving her life behind the previous life behind in that film and she's actually escaping the confines of the film and that, that's yeah. where i kind of that's where i kind of leave it like max cherry his ending in this film is where you see his back walking away into his office where he stops and it looks like he's starting to cry and it gets very cloudy and distorted where you're uncertain of what his future is going to be. Jackie Brown actually has hope for the future because she's escaped the confines of this plot, the confines of this film. She's broken the fourth wall. She's basically connected with the music that's playing over this film. Her and the actual Across 110th Street become one, which is, I, I right. think, one of the greatest things I've ever seen on film. Well, well Max Sherry, despite the fact that he's decided to... Uh leave the bail bonds business at the end like he's still mm -hmm. in it he's still maybe he's servicing the old bonds or maybe he's you know whatever but he deliberately decides not to go with her to europe you know and yep. uh, and travel he's kind of stuck in he's stuck in his reality and she's you know the money she has is is going to fund her and uh you know do something more with herself and mm -hmm. uh i do think that there is a certain sense of the uh um bittersweet to the ending. Oh, there definitely the is, of, yeah. In the sense of, you know, wouldn't it be nice if he could come with, but yeah. he isn't uh, willing to, to go that far. So uh, I, I totally agree with your interpretation. I mean, you know, um, in a sense, it's almost over-signified, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, any film that ends with, you know, uh, someone that, like sitting in a car and driving and then like mouthing words to something or whatever it is, it's going to be, I mean, uh, inherent vice is the same thing, you know? Like, yeah. 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 It ends with, you know, two people like staring into the distance. 
But yeah, no, you're right. I sometimes kind of overlook the the brilliance of the ending, you know, uh, of that last shot. But just because for, for me, and, and this is just a kind of personal thing, once Max Cherry leaves the film, I'm kind of like, all right, well, you know, and then <laughs> she gets in the car, and then she drives away, and then the music starts, and it's over, you know, like, yeah. you know. I mean, um, if, if, she had, if she had put on, like, the stern Pam Greer face from the 70s, I, I, well, I think that would have been she, way different. She's ambivalent. I mean, she's, you know, but that's also like, uh, you know, it is about humanizing this character, you know, in a sense, the Jackie Brown character in the film is sort of the updated version of Coffee or, you know, right, right, right. Um, Cleopatra Jones or whatever, you know, it, it is the sort of modern version of that. The, the, well, now it's 20 years later and like, what the fuck else are you going to do with your life except, you know, work for a shitty airline? Yeah, but I mean, she's in the car and she has the sort of same look she has where she's uh, in the changing room and looks in the mirror at herself. Where oh, God, that's an amazing moment. Yeah, yeah, where she God. has that self-reflection. Yeah. And, I, and I think at the end, she comes to grips with everything, and she's like, okay, I finally left this life behind, and I'm sad about it because Max is not coming with me, but at the same time, it's, okay, I'm starting to pick up on the theme song that's playing over me, and I'm connecting with that, and I'm leaving this fucking movie, I'm leaving this fucking reality, and I'm going on to something bigger and better, hopefully. I, I like to think I like to think she's gonna spend like a year traveling the world, and she's gonna come back and uh, hang out with Max, and they're gonna get married and have yeah, that would, that would be nice, but I don't and, think and it they're is. gonna have amazing like middle aged person sex. It's gonna be great. <laughs> you know? Basically, I just want to imagine Robert Forrester, you know, bending over Pam Greer and like doing doggy style. Like, you know? <laughs> it's a fantasy of mine, you know. Apparently, uh, he did. Apparently. Um... Robert Forrester did some sort of independent film around that time. And Quentin Tarantino started screening it during the production of this film because Robert Forrester did a nude scene and he told Quentin Tarantino, don't, don't tell anybody about this apparently. And (laughs) (laughs) apparently he started screening it for the cast. Hey, look, Robert Forrester's dick. Yeah, because, I mean, Tarantino is notorious for, uh, if, if you're a cast on one of his films, he basically takes you to film school and shows you a bunch of fucking films sure, while yeah, you yeah. film yeah so apparently he did that so there you go <laughs> should mention Sid Haig has a bit part in this as a judge and yep. uh, if you don't know Sid Haig from anything other than Rob Zombie films you well fuck you uh, he co-starred in several of Pam's films in the 70s yeah. six of them I believe uh, so he, it, he, he's really good in this. I mean, it, he has like four lines, but uh, he's he's quite good in this. Apparently, Pam Greer did not know he was in the film, so when she was surprised when she was doing that scene, she was coming up to do that scene, and she got surprised pleasantly by Sid Hag being in the film. So that was nice. Yeah. I like that. Um, one, one of the things I like about the film is uh, Mr. Walker. We never we never see Mr. Walker on on film. And her yeah, hair's voice. You, you, know, you see him. He's just in... a presence. Yeah. You see him in the so-called prequel that came out in 2013 called Life of Crime uh, with uh, Mo's Def, Jennifer Aniston, uh, a couple other people. Um, a good, this is a good cast. I, I remember you told me that that existed, and I thought, like, oh, yeah, I should go download that and watch it, and then never did. So it's. I don't want to say it's bad. I I, I think my but it's bad. It, I no, it's not because. I mean, you watch it, and it's definitely an Elmore Leonard film. Like, you get that from watching it. But 
it just conflicts so much with my love of Jackie Brown where I can't rate it as anything significant. That's where it sits. It's just going up against impossible odds as far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean, competing with one of the greatest crime films ever made is never a good idea. Should mention the three different perspectives used in the uh, sort of set piece, the sort of exchange set piece. That's actually from the book. Yep. That's that's not Quentin Tarantino doing his usual, oh, we're going to be non-linear with my plot. This this was him actually just using something straight from the book and not doing his usual stuff. Which, which you have to think, one of the reasons he left the book was because it had that non-linear bit. I mean... I I, th- I think he gets criticized too much for for that, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he's just doing the nonlinear thing. Well, hey, fuck. I mean, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, does is it used well or not? Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a much more interesting and difficult question because that means you actually have to engage your critical faculties as opposed to just observing the fact that there's a twenty minute sequence that like involves nonlinear time. Yeah. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. If like your <laughs> response, well, he used nonlinear time, therefore it's terrible. It's a derivative, you know, derivative of himself. Well, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't care what you have to say. Yeah, people who accuse him use, of using that as a gimmick and then try to like say this is a gimmick. Fuck you, because it's not a gimmick. It makes the film fucking great. Well, well, it makes it greater. Let's put it yeah, that right, way. Right. Yeah. 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 It's it's all about giving us information in the order in which we need it to heighten the drama. Ultimately. Well, it's it's actually. What do you think about it? It's three different films all of a sudden played within twenty minutes. It's yeah. just like because it's three different characters' perspectives. Right. So yeah. I mean, I mean, you get the the sort of. I mean, in a way. You can you can view it as this is how filmmaking works, right? Because the original is sort of the master, you know, sort of the, mm. let's look from the let's get this sort of lay of the land, let's get the and uh, I, God, I almost want to look through it like shot by shot at this point, <laughs> you know, and like say this is what Tarantino is actually doing. And then the second one is, well, now we're gonna watch, you know. Uh, Lewis and Melanie kind of show up, and, and kind of, well, they're late, so we get the character bit, and then they show up, they do the thing, they're uh, hanging out by the, the rack, they're fighting, yeah. and then, like, kind of they go in, and so you get the sort of, okay, we know that Melanie kind of goes, we know that there's tension going on, and then we know that Melanie dies, and then after that, you know, uh, Lewis leaves, and there's that great moment where he... He backs up in the in the van, and the car stops, and then he has to start back up again. And the music starts up again. It's such a great little comic moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, here's the whole point. The whole thing is to show you this is how the plot works. This is how the we're going to steal the money thing works. Because it's not explained in audio. It's not explained. Right. No one ever tells us as an audience, this is how she's going to take the money. He's standing back. Robert Forster's standing back. He watches everything leave, watches everyone leave, and then walks in, and he goes, well, she left some towels or whatever, and then kind of comes in and uh, takes it and walks out. Mm -hmm. So the whole point is to establish for the audience, give us the information of how the interlocking plots are actually working in the favor of Robert Forster being able to work walk out with the bag of towels and their yeah. money. It slowly unveils the actual so, so, plot. So, 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 sorry to over-explain that, but like, apparently I have to, despite the fact that I'm not actually watching it. <laughs> no, is, no. You know, it's because, all, it's, because anybody who doesn't understand like what the fuck that sequence is doing doesn't understand how cinema works. Again, that just goes back to Quentin Tarantino actually taking from Elmore Leonard 
the idea of the characters explain the plot. It's not him describing the plot to you in some sort of omnipotent I mean, I mean, narrative. It's, it's 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 a it's a perfect tell. It's a perfect show don't tell moment. You know. Yeah, and uh, and Robert he, Ford- he expects the audience to be clever enough to be able to follow it, and he gives you numerous visual clues in terms of establishing that. The fact that you see there's that panning shot where you see Robert Forrester right. standing by the uh, the clothes rack in the uh, second iteration of that. You know? yeah. so, so you know he's going to come back. You know he's there watching. Yeah. And you just don't understand what he means. And uh, maybe on a first viewing, I mean... Oh, on I, the first... I, on do, the first... I, do, I do remember my first viewing and, and just kind of like, uh, kind of responded to it and kind of going, yeah, I don't quite... Like, I get sort of the emotional level of this, but I don't quite get what's going on. But the whole thing with something like that is you're going to watch it again and under you know, and get it once you... Oh, all right, you know. But yeah. but even but even on the first viewing, you're kind of you kind of follow along with, even though every piece of this I don't necessarily follow, I understand you've shown me enough information that I kind of get what's going on. It's way better than so many other films that try to give you you know how this kind of shit works. Oh yeah, um, no, it works great because the first two things where you get Jackie Brown's perspective, then you get Lewis and Melanie's perspective. They give you lots of hints as to what the fuck's going on. You get it, okay? There's going to be some sort of an exchange. There's some sort of thing going on here. Then you get Max Cherry's perspective, which becomes our perspective. Yeah. And so then you start to understand, but even at the same time, Max Cherry's perspective gives us more of what the fuck is actually going on and explains it to us. So it's a a really brilliantly written scene. Like, it's just fucking clockwork perfect. And, and I mean, it's just another one of those things that makes me think greatest crime film in the last 30 years ever made. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to even compare this to other crime films. I mean, it's just such on a different level to to say, you know. I mean, it's it's at the Chinatown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chinatown, The Big Sleep. Jackie Brown, three greatest crime films ever made. Definitely in the modern era, I would agree. Yeah. Uh, box office budget. Yeah, yeah you were going a, there. And that's what we, I was going to jump to. And then we uh, just jumped into like nonlinear time, and I'm like, "Fuck you!" People who <laughs> criticize this film, I let's will defend. Go, let's go back to the beginning and introduce the show now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, budget twelve million. Box office uh, domestic was thirty nine, and then eventually worldwide seventy four point. Seven million, which which isn't terrible for ninety seven. I mean, no, you know, for, it, for for you know that's fucking great for yeah. a slow crime film with no action at all in it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was it was considered a failure compared to Pulp Fiction, which right. did one hundred forty, which still wasn't a big film, but it was a, sort of the the Miramax thing, and they put a ton of budget behind this. I know there was like an MTV uh, contest and that sort of thing. Like they were trying to make this into a big film, but at the same time, it's, you know, you greenlit this weird little movie with, you know, star from 20 years ago mm-hmm. from, from black exploitation as the lead who is, uh, you know, on the, on the front of every poster who it's hard to explain what this film is. This isn't the kind of film where you can say in a sentence, Oh, this is a film about this woman, Jackie Brown, who uh, gets one over on everybody in terms of doing a drug heist. Uh, uh, You can't explain this in so many words, and uh, that's problematic in terms of trying to sell it to mass audiences. But, you know, it it made its money back, which 
Mm-hmm. It's more than a whole bunch of fucking shit in Miramax in 1997 was doing. Yeah, really. This, this, <laughs> this is not some merchant ivory, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's watch Victorian white people eat pudding kind of movie, you know. <laughs> but it also did a ton better than uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, the, the kind of Tarantino clones, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. But but I kind of get where uh, Tarantino then took like seven years off. DVD, Blu-ray info, you can get what I have, which is the Merrimax two-disc collector's edition from 2002, which is amazing. Oh, uh, God, yeah. The, no, the supplements on it are crazy. Uh, later, Tarantino discs have no, almost no supplements at all. Like, this was the uh, period where his discs actually had shit on them, so... I'll speak to this, actually, because uh, this, was, this was the time period before Kill Bill. 2002 was the 10-year anniversary of Reservoir Dogs. So, Reservoir Dogs had a shitty edition, and Pulp Fiction had a shitty edition, and Jackie Brown didn't even have a DVD release at that point. I mean, I remember that moment, because I owned the VHS, and so if I wanted to rewatch Jackie Brown, I'd have to put on the shitty VHS release of Jackie (laughs) Brown. I remember when, you know, basically the, like the 10-year anniversary of Reservoir Dogs came out, and uh, Miramax said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do like a big re-release of Pulp Fiction, and that's going to be the big moneymaker, and also we're finally going to release Jackie Brown on DVD, and I went, fuck, I need to own Jackie Brown on DVD. Yeah. I bought all three, and uh, they're both amazing two-disc two selection. Yeah. But um, he really hasn't, I mean, Tarantino, and this is, this is something, I mean, we could talk about Tarantino for, I mean, I could talk about Tarantino for, like, <laughs> again, he doesn't want to talk about his films. He will talk no. about everybody else's films, but it doesn't talk about his films. And I think that the uh, the key to that is he thinks they should stand on their own, but mm-hmm. I also think he kind of likes it when people misinterpret them. Yeah. He kind of likes it when people don't understand what he's really getting at, or at least he's willing to let that be a thing because he's after things that are, he's doing things that are complex enough that he's kind of willing to let history be the guide. And to yeah. let us talking about them kind of defend it for him, you know. And he's um, he's smart enough to be not to be one of those directors who's so preachy. Like, no, this is what my film was really about. You stupid fucks. Right, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a very refreshing attitude to have. And right. Just, yeah. I mean, he, well, he, well, and he he embraces controversy, but doesn't put himself into the conversation. And I think that that's also. I mean, I think that there's a there's a level of the the spike. You know, it's funny that Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino argue. It's funny mm-hmm. that they are at odds with each other because, in a lot of ways, they're kind of saying the same shit. I mean, yeah. you know, they're kind of making the same fairly obvious point, which is black people are human. You know, like it's one of those things where I don't know about you, Daniel, but I mean, I've met plenty of people in my life where. They're so goddamn similar that they hate each other. They mm-hmm. just they can't get along with each other because they're so fucking similar. Like it's just right. they they bounce off each other. Right? Well, and 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 I think Spike Lee has a legitimate sort of complaint that um, Tarantino kind of stole his thunder to a certain degree. Yeah, and, um, but uh, at the same time, and, and got to and got to be the brilliant, the, the quote unquote, the brilliant auteur filmmaker because he's the well, guy, you know. Uh, well, I guess maybe, but I mean, at the same time, Spike Lee, he should have made some better movies. Well, I think I think in '94, uh, there's a, uh, or even in '97, you know, the the real sons of Spike Lee come after that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess is Poetic Justice is that actually a Spike Lee film? Uh, I can't remember. I feel, um, I feel like the, you know. the only thing I remember is the last really good Spike Lee film I saw in a long time is The Sweet Blood of Jesus. 
which is a remake of Ganja and Hess. Sure. I mean, I mean, Spike Lee has made some. Spike Lee's made a bunch of crap, you know, which Tarantino mm-hmm. hasn't, because Tarantino's been very particular about what he decides to make. Yeah. But I think in in like '97, uh, you don't see the same. I mean, you know. Um, you know, you basically got, she's got to have it, you got to do the right thing, you've got, uh, you know, get on the bus it's a couple of years later, I yeah. forget the exact order. I mean, you've got a bunch of, like, really brilliant films, which, you know, Spike Lee wasn't getting the attention for. And that's because Spike Lee was, as a black man, and stepping out there as a black man, being very overtly political about what he was trying to say. Mm-hmm. And then he was feuding with Tarantino, and Tarantino's saying, well... The N word is so problematic or so so difficult. I'm just going to shout it from the rooftops, which is not what a white man should be saying about like his work. When he, you know, it is the sort of thing that makes people hate Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. I hate, I love Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker, but I hate him for saying that. You know, I agree with Spike Lee politically on a whole bunch of things, but you're wrong on the sort of uh, artistic merit of Tarantino's work, basically. You know. Well, I mean, when he's when he's going to come out and say, "Well, I didn't even," I'm going to criticize the film without even watching it. Well, like, right. fuck you, fuck you. Yeah. I mean, watch the and, film. But 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 I think that's a little bit later. I think that's the. I mean, you know, I'm just. I'm well, just, yeah, that's like, no, that's, that's Django to, Unchained. That's Django that. Unchained. Where we could talk about Django Unchained all day, but I I do sort of I hate the fact that he said that that he refused to see it. I think there's a. I mean, I love Django Unchained. Might be my second favorite Tarantino. It might go. Inglorious Django, Jackie Brown. It's either that or Inglorious Jackie Django. Those, those are my top three. Nice. You know, but I understand Spike Lee's perspective in saying the history of my people is not a black exploitation movie. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that's what Tarantino was trying to do, but I understand Spike Lee's perspective in saying if you're even going to pretend to do this, you're fundamentally taking advantage of the history of like slavery in America. You know, here's the thing. Um, here's the thing. Wouldn't it be nice if they could actually sit down in a room and talk? And Harvey Weinstein tried to make that happen, and yeah. Spike Lee refused. So I mean, that's kind of the end of the discussion right there, pretty much. Yeah, it, it, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is, as a white man, it's not my perspective to judge Spike Lee for that, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I acknowledge, um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a white man from the South, and so is Quentin Tarantino, and so I'm, I'm just kind of, I acknowledge that automatically he's saying things that I agree with as a white man from the South who fucking hates racism, which he clearly does. Yeah. That's great, but I also acknowledge Spike Lee has some really interesting things to say, even though I disagree with some shit. And, but I but I also acknowledge his perspective on that. So that's kind of where I land on that. Uh, yeah. There will eventually be an essay I write about this, which yeah. hopefully I will express a little bit more nuance in this. I'm, I apologize for kind of you know going into the details on that because I wasn't trying to. I was hoping to avoid it honestly. <laughs> but you know, hey, there we go. I'm a racist. That's what I'm saying. I'm a I'm a horrifying racist. If people weren't aware of that already, then yeah, uh, yeah. they haven't been listening to this podcast for I've, a long I've, time. I've used the N-word on this podcast. Go back and listen. Go back and listen yeah. to all the episodes and find it. Yeah. Quote yeah. me out of context and uh, put it out there on Twitter and then, um, you know. Daniel Harper says the N-word on TMB DOS. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be the be the greatest thing for this podcast ever. You know? Yeah, it'd be some publicity, yeah. So, yeah, if you didn't get it by now, we love Jackie Brown. Uh, so... If you haven't seen this film, there's something wrong with you. Just saying, you're either really young or you're really stupid. One or the other. So watch the fucking film. Stop being stupid. Stop being young. Get old like us and watch the film. 
be, become an old person like us, or or just you know if 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 the name Tarantino is turning you off, this is this is the one that's the least Tarantino esque. That's if right. You've, if you've only seen maybe like Django and Pulp Fiction. And you're like, oh, man, I just don't like his style. This isn't that. This is something very different. Yeah. Like, this is the most atypical Tarantino film. Yeah. And, and this is where I say, if you're only going to watch one, if you don't like the style, if you're not interested in, in sort of the big dramatic numbers, this is the one to watch, to understand, like, this is a truly talented and brilliant filmmaker. Um, and I might disagree with you about not liking the other stuff, but, you know, you're probably going to like this one. Yeah, I think... I think- you know, if you're reasonable, if you're not an unreasonable piece of shit, we'll all come together on this one and say at least Jackie Brown's awesome. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Daniel, where can people find you on the internet? Come find me uh, at Daniel Lee Harper on Twitter. Uh, everything that I do goes up there. I have some podcasts, but again, everything just goes through my Twitter these days. Um, and uh, I talk a lot about politics and then like a bitch about Sargon of the Cod. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's basically all you know, telling people why white nationalism is bullshit, and then also uh, why Sargon of Akkad is bullshit. That's kind of the the two things that I do these days. So check it out. Yeah, there you go. And and occasion and and uh, an occasional uh, nudity, like female nudity. And, it's not. Uh, it's not occasional. You retweet porn stars all the time. I, I do, but usually not their nudity. Usually their politics. Because, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, you yeah. Know, I do I do follow a bunch of porn stars and then they like my shit. It's 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 pretty awesome, you know. I had um, <laughs> uh, Mistress Matisse, who is uh, this brilliant like King dot com performer from like two thousand two, who uh, like uh, tweeted out something and uh, you know I I retweeted it and added the comment like this is the intersection of uh, fiscal conservatism and uh, and eugenics. <laughs> and she res- and she responded because it's basically like you know um, American politicians like trying to cut horrifying numbers from you know healthcare, and right. then she responded very well put. And I'm like, well, if uh, Mistress Batiste uh, agrees with me, then uh, I'm probably doing something right because yeah. you know. So yeah, go follow me on Twitter. A bunch of porn stars. I retweet. It's fine. Yeah, you you click any of those fucking retweets, and you're going to see a lot of titties. <laughs> And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find all of our links to YouTube, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, and our Facebook group. And join our Facebook group, because it's the best way to get in touch with us, and uh, send us messages, and we'll respond to them and talk to you on the actual podcast, whether it's criticisms or uh, uh, lauding our brilliance. You know, either way, we love it both. And we're going to have an episode one fucking hundred next episode. I'm not sure when exactly we're going to do it because we have to plan meticulously with Paul and get everything in order. But it is going to happen. And uh, again, if you uh, want to send in uh, some sort of congratulations or insults or something relating around the fact that we've done a hundred episodes of this podcast... I will put the email address in the show notes, so please feel free to send either email texts or MP3s. Either way, we'll play and respond to all that shit before we actually get into the Night of the Living Dead 1968 commentary that we're going to be doing. Yeah, tell, tell us how much we suck. Yeah, so Daniel, 
Thank you very much for joining me, and I'm glad we're, as much as I've enjoyed doing this crime series, I'm glad we're finally fucking God, through it. Like, we're, wasn't this supposed to be like a three-month thing? Like, we thought it was going to be long when we thought, like, oh yeah, we'll do two or three months of this. And then, like, I was busy and you were busy, and then we've just extended until the point where it's just ridiculous. Yeah. We're not doing we're not doing sex comedies this year because no. we fucked up. We're, we're going to do a couple of sex comedies because there are a couple we just wanted to do. You know? Yeah. So don't think, audience, that we've forgotten you. Yeah, we're we're moving in horror. We're, we're going to do some other stuff, but yeah, I'm really happy. We're not doing crime series. We're not doing crime films next year. Like that's the. Yeah, I think that's we, off, we, off the. We've done table. enough, you know. But it's been great doing it. I think we found some good films as well. Mm-hmm. Like I'm really happy to to have done it. You know. No, it was a lot of fun discoveries. It definitely was. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for bearing with us with our schedule. I know it's been kind of trying, uh, especially for people who actually anticipate new episodes every fucking week. Uh, apologies, but you know, real life and all that shit. And uh, you don't you pay us, so who cares? You know. Yeah, well, <laughs> that too. But you know, until the next time when we uh, do our commentary for None of the Living Dead, uh, we'll see you all later. Goodbye. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through.